Welcome to the Back Page, a video games podcast. I'm Samba Roberts. I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, we are live on Patreon.com. For the listeners at home, if they've ever wanted to support us financially, they can go to Patreon.com slash BackPagePod, sign up to the XL tier, and immediately unlock another podcast, The Best Boss Battles. So yes, that's exciting. How do you feel about the fact that we are now on Patreon and people can financially support us to get more from their two favourite giant hosts? Great. It's going to unlock uh, a, a world of even bigger, more indulgent sandwiches for me at lunch, um, <laughs> as long as it's successful. If, if we don't even get to the making one baguette's worth, uh, <laughs> I'll be very, very sad. Yeah, no, it's good. Uh, I know it's been a long time coming and we've been uh, talking this up for some time. And so it's good to yeah, good to finally get it done there and um, see how it goes. Yeah, for sure. So I think people will really like what we've got coming up. So if you're like a high, uh, like a diehard fan of the podcast, you can basically get twelve more podcasts a year from us. But if we hit our stretch goal of six hundred pounds overall a month, then we will unlock another twelve podcasts. So there's up to twenty four extra podcasts potentially on the table, depending on how it goes. But That's a lot of podcasts. It is. But in the um in the short term, we've um committed to a whole year of ideas so people will know what they're paying for, which I think is um ideally how we like to do things. So if it's not kind of nebulous and people feel like they're getting something for their money. So Let's um let's tell people what we've got planned for the XL tier on Patreon, Matthew, for the year. So April twenty twenty two, we've got Best Boss Battles. That's um that's live, like I say, at the time of um, recording. Each of these um XL uh, back page XL episodes will go live probably on the second Monday of each month, just to kind of spread out the um the kind of like uh, uploads a little bit. But this first one's just out uh, today when people can download this. But what have we got planned for May twenty twenty two, Matthew? Uh, we are doing 20 Xbox back compatible games worth revisiting. Good stuff. And on, um, for June uh, 2022, we've got the best and worst E3 moments ever. Uh, then in July, we're doing our top 20 Metal Gear Solid moments. Then in August, we're doing the best Hitman assassinations. Found an excuse to talk about Hitman again, which is good. <laughs> yeah. In September, we are doing the best 7 out of 10 games, which I think people know what we're talking about with that. This is a very 7 out of 10 games podcast. (laughs) And then um, October, we've got Best Zelda Dungeons. Looking forward to Matthew carrying me through that one. Should be good. (laughs) Uh, In November, we are doing uh, PS5 versus Xbox Series X 2022 edition. So basically picking up a conversation from one of our very earliest episodes. Our first episode? Yep, our first episode like two years later. Um, So that's exciting, I think. Just a little bit of an update on how that's going, the old console war. So, uh, yeah, good stuff. In December, we've got um, Game of the Year, Positions 11 to 15, Volume 1. To explain what that is, we're going to go back through our Game of the Year episodes and um, pull out our honourable mentions, put those into more of an order, and then discuss those in more detail, because we think that would be fun, just for some further reflections on those years, because they're always such chunky episodes. There's always more to say. How about um, January next year, Matthew? In January, we've got Rockstar Open World Games Ranked. In February, we've got Guilty Gaming Pleasures. That's different to 7 out of 10 games. <laughs> Don't start point, pointing out the conceptual flaws, Matthew, uh, <laughs> but we've only just launched. And March 2023, in a year's time, we will have Best Gaming Books slash tie-ins slash extended fiction. Yep, so if you back us at the um, at the £4.50 tier, the XL tier, um, you'll get like a, a link to drop into your podcatcher of choice. 
and um, through that through there you'll get every episode that we make from here on in we decided just start it as the patreon's gone live so this episode 2012 and then the um, best boss battles are unlocked and the patreon fund can begin we'll see how it goes matthew and if we quietly close it in a month we uh, i may go back and delete this from this episode so let's see how it goes but um <laughs> <laughs> uh, we don't we won't do a hard sell every episode but um we did want to just say to people like if you want to support us if you've ever enjoyed what we do and you want to say thank you there's like a one pound tier for that and then if you want to get more from us there's a tier for that too so we didn't want to make it too expensive we didn't want to make it too prohibitive we're not looking to get rich from it we just kind of like um it's just kind of a, a nice incentive to keep the podcast a bit more sustainable as we've discussed so before if, if we were to accidentally get rich <laughs> Yeah, I'll do, if if we hit like um, I don't know, like two grand or something, I will give some of my money to Centerpoint. It may just be twelve pounds a month, but still, it'll be some of that money. So, uh, <laughs> with the pitch out of the way, Matthew, we've come back to one of our best games of the different year episodes. These are always so much fun to do. They're always incredibly long. Um, so I've had a big fat egg sandwich to prep for this. I've and had this- two hot cross buns. <laughs> this one's been a long time coming as well. We haven't done one of these this year. Um, normally we do them every 10 weeks, but for whatever reason, there was some more timely stuff to do this year um, to, to b- b- bump this down the road. But that now we'll go back to our regular cadence of them, try and do them every two or so months. So, Matthew, 2012 games, how are you feeling about the whole um, revisiting this episode format thing? Yeah, great. I mean, it's kind of a, a wild year for me professionally. Um, probably the most hectic year of my magazine career. Um, lots of upheavals, lots of change. Kind of a weird year for games as well at the same time, but I was slightly distracted from that by all the aforementioned professional upheaval. So going back to it, I misremembered a lot of this year, I think. It was better in some ways, worse in other ways. So I'm I'm looking forward to digging into it, particularly hearing your choices from... I feel this year I was particularly shaky on what was happening outside of Nintendo. Right, yeah. Well, the good news is um, I don't have a single Nintendo game in my list, so um, oh, we should that's have criminal. <laughs> <laughs> we should have a completely different um, selection of games here, um, which is good. But yeah, I've got like a, I've got, I've got quite a firm idea by comparison. Um, yeah, I suppose just to get into it, like, um, do people will know that we've done uh, previously done two thousand six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. Um, we do these uh, long episodes where we do like a, we each do an alternating top ten in the old um, Chet and John's uh, reassuringly finite gaming playlist style. And then we talk about what we were doing professionally at the time for a bit of background. We talk about the lay of the land in terms of major events and E3 and stuff. So we're doing that again here. And um, for me personally, this is a weird year too. This was the year that I um, uh, I, w- I was on Sci-Fi Now, the TV and film magazine. Then at some point, I think in September, I got bumped over to Play Magazine again, which is the magazine where I started my um, uh, career in games media. So... I was deputy editor, and I was, but basically editor. I don't. I was called deputy editor, even though I was running the mag. That was kind of annoying, um, to be honest. But um, just <laughs> yeah, uh, that's understandable. Yeah, it's like you know, we can pay you less, so we'll just do that for a while. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, you can edit a magazine, and then later we'll call you the editor. That was the kind of vibe, really. But um, it was like uh, it was not my favorite um, spell working on a magazine. Um, when I later worked on GamesTM, that was much much better. I came back to Play Magazine, and it was a bit like... I think something that's easy to do in um, any kind of media, but in games media too, is to talk yourself into thinking that the thing, the core thing that you do, i.e. reviewing games, previewing games, 
um, doing features on games is like out of date and you need to kind of refresh it in some way or chase some other horizon, the kind of pivot to video sort of thing. It's right. really easy to do that in the search for something new. And I think that play had become that a little bit in that it had like a, a cosplay page and it had like all this like vague gaming culture stuff that didn't really have much to do with PlayStation. Right. So I was a bit bummed out by it and it felt like and it felt like no one was paying attention to it. It was like this is like the old play magazine, like not the new one, of course. And so at a certain point, a staff writer quit and I was running it solo. That was like ridiculous. <laughs> and uh, a very very stressful month. I think I wrote something like forty five pages in a month, something like that. It was just yeah. bonkers. Um, not good. And um, yeah, and so play just felt like it, it was a, the end of the PS three era, which itself was kind of like a bit of a bummer of a time, combined <laughs> with the fact this mag had become less PlayStation than before. And so I was like a bit. I was a bit of a low ebb. Um, there was also like a games industry event I went to this year where a couple of journalists were a bit sniffy with me, and then. But then the next year, miraculously, one of them was when I was work editing PC Gamer seemed a lot nicer, and I was like, I was a bit bummed out by that. Most people in games media are very courteous, but mm. I had a couple of bad experiences that year where I was like, ah, oh, this kind of sucks. Actually, <laughs> being spoken to like I don't matter. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Oh, that's fine. It's ten years ago, you know. I think at this point, our paths were still yet to like properly cross. Yeah, somehow um, we were both like five years into our career, but hadn't yeah. crossed. But. This was also the year, Matthew, where I went for the O&M deputy editor job and lost out to uh, a strapping young handsome man named Matthew Castle. So These are my favourite kind of anecdotes. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you pick up from there and talk about like um, how your year was professionally? Yeah, so t- 2012 was a bit of a weird year. If you remember from our 2011 episode, 2011 was the year where quite a lot of Endgamer got laid off and the three unofficial mags of Future kind of got crushed together into this hub system where it was basically a mega team making three mags and I was working with Andy Kelly and Tim Weaver uh, in like the writing hub so we were basically just like writers for hire kind of floating pool of writers and that that on paper a bit miserable but was having like an amazing time because Tim and Andy are like two of the most fun people you could work with and the laughs we had and the jokes and just only just spent all day cackling while everyone else was having like a really really hard time getting used to this new mega team structure um but uh yeah at the end of 2011 we redesigned Endgamer into Nintendo Gamer which launched its first issue in 2012 so this this was a big year for us Endgamer was was evolving into its new form it was about time like we were on the cusp of Wii U we were about a year into 3DS it felt like you know we had Super Play uh, we'd had N64, NGC, Endgamer. You know, I was like, this is so exciting. I'm going to be in from, like, day one. I'm on the ground floor of this this new iteration of the mag. So I was kind of pulled into Endgamer a bit more while still being in this hub system. But that was fine, and we, we made this mag. Um, have we, did we, I can't remember if we actually talked about, like, uh, redesigning the mag on a previous episode or if we've talked about mag redesigns in general. Not really, no, I don't think so. So yeah, that's like quite a big part of the. Um, your, it's a bit of a milestone in your career to work on one of those, isn't it? Yeah, because what tends to happen is, you know, when you're working on a mag, you're relatively self-contained. It's just the mag team and your publisher, and there's not really a lot of outside voices. But when you redesign, obviously, you know, it's a big future property, you know, or a big-ish future property. Not their biggest for sure, but big enough that. Um, 
lots of other people become involved, a lot more like senior creative people. So on on Nintendo Gamer, it was um, Charlotte Martin, who was the editor. It was me. Uh, Tim Clark uh, was uh, involved. Uh, I think at that point he was like a general, like like maybe editor in chief of games. I think was his role. Right. And uh, like a senior art guy called Graham, a publisher, and you go through quite a bruising process where obviously me and Charlotte were like, we know Endgamer, we've been doing this, you know, I'd been doing it for my entire career as a, as a writer, only on this one mag, I was very protective of it. And like, they basically came in and like tore it to shreds in terms of, and you know, I took like huge offense to this at the start. I was like, oh man, this is so rough. Like, these guys hate Endgamer. They hate this mag. Like, this is not the team who should be redesigning it. And actually, it was just like having some outside eyes on it and some outside perspective. And we'd maybe gone a bit mad and had a bit of like tunnel vision from working on it for so long. And um, so it was quite a kind of combative experience, I found, where we were trying to protect the essence of Endgamer and they were trying to like evolve it into something new. And so it was this constant kind of tug of war. And I mean, it's 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 basically ends up feeling like an issue you work on for like four or five months. Like the process was long, you know, and we, we were, you know, designing the broad structure of the mag, like what sections we wanted, you know, what its philosophy was going to be. You start with these kind of top ideas and then that gradually filters down into the weirder stuff where Endgamer was always, you know, anyone who read that mag will know it was very bitty. It was made of lots of like lots like a thousand silly little ideas, and it maybe wasn't held together with one big binding grand philosophy. And you know, I think probably me and Charlotte just wanted to jump to the fun bit, which we were good at, which was all the nonsense. So once we got through that initial period of trying to kind of hammer out what the mag was going to be, and once we got into that, I began to feel a bit more comfortable with it. I'm incredibly proud of Nintendo Gamer, the, the mag that we ended up making. Um, it didn't really last long enough for people to kind of get a feel for it, I don't think. And I don't really know what the consensus is on it. Like, you know, when it relaunched, some of the readers were like, this is great. Some really loved it. Some thought it was a bit boring. Um, it was definitely like a more sophisticated magazine. Like, it, like art-wise, it was a lot cleaner. It had this big format. It was like, it's, it's kind of extra wide mag. It's got quite a strange um, dynamic to it. Um but it also had all that kind of weird stuff in there. It was just maybe a bit more kind of politely presented. So I, I thought it I thought it felt like it was enough of a continuation, but also something quite bold and new. Um, but, you know, maybe some listeners to this podcast will disagree. I don't know. I don't know how many people actually read it, really. It's very few, um, which is why they closed it. So, yeah, we went through all that big launch. I was really, like, renewed and excited by it. Uh, then Charlotte went on maternity leave, and the big thing was they made me the editor of um, a Nintendo Gamer, which was obviously something I'd always dreamed of. I couldn't believe it, and it was a nice environment to be doing it in because we were because Nintendo Gamer was still part of this hub system. I kind of left the the writing team, joined the more editorial team of the hub, and was editing it kind of under the guiding eye of Dan Dawkins, who mm. readers listeners know we've had on this podcast before, and. You know, he was kind of like a sort of senior editor-in-chief of it, I guess. And that was like a really nice place, like a really nice safety net to have because, like, Nintendo Gamer didn't have any permanent staff other than me. <laughs> right, right. Um, so you're, like, learning to be an editor without a team, without a permanent team. And so, you know, that, that, that all worked really well. But then um, 
this is just what a wild year it was you know i i, I did the sort of the first issue which was the uh the 12 the 10 games to save nintendo which i've definitely talked about in this pod on this podcast before there was this slightly like aggressive nintendo line the company was trying to push that i didn't really like and we were constantly kind of fighting over that like i didn't think nintendo needed saving um there was that also gave us the cover line wii u in crisis that was before i was editing it i always really hated that and then the issue afterwards, we did the Rhythm Heaven cover, which again, I've definitely talked about, which was like just a huge celebration of like one of the most obscure Nintendo games ever. The fact that we were allowed to do that cover should have probably set off alarm bells that Nintendo Gamer wasn't long for this world because it is one of the most niche games you could ever put on a cover. And I was like, I can't believe they're letting us get away with this. <laughs> and the reason they were letting us get away with this was I think about two hours after we sent that mag to deadline, uh, my publisher rang me up and said he was closing Nintendo Gamer, which was... I went from a moment of pure ecstasy and professional pride. I really felt like I'd finally achieved something and made a mag that... I'd edited it, I'd taken more control of it, and I'd done something I really wanted to do to have it all wrenched away. And it was basically a, yeah, it was kind of like, you know, you can go to London and and be associate editor on official Nintendo magazine. Or I don't actually know what the other option was. It may have been like, or there won't be a job for you. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Because it, so, it was a bumpy time for Future as well at the time. Oh, it was, yeah. So that was, that was like, really, really sad. That was really sad, and I was, I was super bummed out. But then, like, sorry, I'm talking a lot in this episode. No, but, that's okay. Yeah. It's a, this is, like, a major moment, and pe- yeah, people will then, want to hear like, about it. I will say, like, on a, like, person, you know, on a more kind of personal level, like, running alongside this, like, early in 2012, I met Catherine for the first time. Uh, at a at an event in London, and I must admit, like after that phone call where he was like, you know, it's basically bust, you know, London or bust, you know, I'd kind of sort of stayed in contact with Catherine. We'd sort of seen each other a couple of times, and I actually thought, well, you know, that was kind of a factor in some of my thinking. You're like, there's actually a chance here for some to have something like maybe beyond a job, you know, because I'd been, you know, a bit of a bit of a sort of lonely workaholic all through Endgamer, and it's like, well, here's a chance to have a fresh start in a new place, you know, you know, it's potentially this, this stuff with Catherine as well, and, and that, that that could be something like that probably wasn't going to happen if I stayed in Bath. So, yeah, I just kind of, yeah, I made the decision to kind of move away from Bath. It was really hard, like, all my friends were here, you know, and this was back when Bath was still stuffed with the people I'd I was working I'd worked with for five years it's it's very different now like a lot of people have moved on or emigrated or all kinds of things um but back then it was it was tough also like not to be weird about it but part of me thought it felt like a sort of slight betrayal to go and work on official Nintendo right like my whole career I'd been an unofficial Nintendo guy I didn't think the official Nintendo magazine was anywhere near as good as Endgamer and I was, I thought it was sort of. I was worried that I'd be seen as a bit of a sellout for doing it. Right. Obviously, I did do it. I went, you know, I went to London, and that coincided with like Wii U coming out, and yeah, it was just such a, it was such a manic year. I went to E3 this year. That's where I met Chandra properly for the first time. He was editing official Nintendo, so that was another weird quirk of that job. Was that Chandra? For people who don't know, had worked on the unofficial Nintendo mags um, over in Bournemouth. Kind of coming up, he'd worked on Cube magazine, and had eventually ended up on official Nintendo magazine and left. I don't actually know what he did in the middle years, but he'd left Future, 
but he came back in. So it's this bit of this weird thing where it's like we're like restaffing O&M with like Chandra, who's got this unofficial background, Matthew, who's got an unofficial background. We had to hire a new staff writer. Basically, their whole team had left um, for various reasons. So, yeah, it was just such a manic, manic fucking time. Like, it's like, no wonder I didn't have time to form an opinion on Far Cry 3. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's a lot. By contrast, in Bournemouth, like, a lot of my friends were kind of leaving. Right. Like, they had just either burned out on it or had better opportunities elsewhere or had personal stuff going on i had one uh, one quite close friend on the um imagines photography mags who left future when she left it felt like a bit of a end of an era thing and i felt like i was firmly i was suddenly like a veteran there and so mm. there weren't many people left to, to be put into these more senior roles on games mags mm. and indeed there are a few of them around so it felt like actually a bit of a time where games mag sales took a kicking as the generation really winds down i think the last like couple of years from sony and microsoft this generation is quite poor in a way yeah. that you just did not see with the ps4 era which ended with like you know final fantasy 7 remake ghost Tsushima, death stranding all this rad stuff um right and this instead felt like ah uh, well we'll put out our kind of like fourth sequel that no one is really clamoring for we're doing more stuff with the our peripheral nonsense that won't matter in about a year and a half anyway and like yeah it was like that coincided i think with just quite a big dip in mag sales is my memory it was just yeah. like it just the excitement was gone from the generation it gone on a bit too long for the amount of stuff they had and it was kind of like the air was leaving the tires a bit um yeah but you yeah. also had to sort of coincide with that i feel like like Everyone, like everyone online, especially, was getting like a bit dirtier, a bit more desperate. Like everyone was getting like shoutier with the headlines. Like this is definitely a period where you see a spike in like the conversation around clickbait. Like everything started getting a bit more aggressive because it was filtering into mags. You know, that's where the stuff like the Wii U in crisis came from. It's like yeah, this may sound sexy as a headline, which is going to be gone tomorrow on CVG, but. You know, this is we have twelve. You know, we have twelve chances to talk to people a year. Thirteen issues, I guess, in magazines. And the idea of giving over one of our covers to this sort of shouty, kind of sort of, sort of hysterical, kind of you know, portent of doom, it really sat at odds with me. But this was the conversation everyone was having. Everyone was getting very aggressive about like cells on covers and very, very kind of like. You know, you're always trying to make punchy cover lines, but these this was something else. This was this felt like people in panic mode, and it just didn't sit easy with with me, who just wanted to like, you know, do all this daft bullshit. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I don't think that stuff. I've I've never, no one has ever who I've met had a formula for what works in a magazine. It is all received wisdom. Yeah, and it's like it's just uh, it's a headache of like conflicting opinions and like the best person i worked with for this was was tim when i was on pc gamer because he kind of he trusted me to make the cover decisions offered helpful pointers but wasn't like you have to change this this and this or it's not shouty enough and like mm. imagine it was a bit more like that um i think that like when you look at edges covers now i think those are like actually what my platonic ideal of a great magazine cover is it's like we will pick a game that we think is super rad and then like and then the mag will kind of like exist in its own kind of like domain and it's like and right. the cover the cover will look beautiful and like the product itself is what matters like it doesn't feel like it 
it tries to like muscle in on like headlines with stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like it's yeah, and that's what I kind of like. If I could go back and do anything differently with mags, I would be I would celebrate the fact that we were a mag more, be more singular, yeah. and try and uh, try and argue less with the internet because the internet doesn't care anyway. So yeah, I mean yeah, yeah, but like coming into that and like becoming an editor and taking control in that atmosphere, like you are on unsteady ground. Like there's there's so many like things you have to learn and there's so many different battles you really have to pick them carefully and i just i feel like you know i could shepherd nintendo gamer a lot better in its final months you know i could have now i would have the confidence to 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 stand up and say actually no i don't i don't want us to be negative about nintendo that is just not what people want from us yeah um but at the time we just couldn't i mean it was same you know like you know even charlotte herself and i'm sure she'd 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 say this herself you know was a you know a relatively newish editor on it you know come come up through quite an unusual route you know in that she was a production editor on the mag and went from production editor to editor and yeah so it's you know it was it was always a quite a strange kind of makeup and trying to kind of protect your values while also like absorbing the wisdom of people who aren't as into Nintendo it was, yeah it was yeah super super interesting importantly I didn't make any enemies <laughs> in that period <laughs> where I think like you know without getting to some specifics things could sometimes get a little heated in the hub because you basically had three editorial teams together right and not everyone saw what why <laughs> and you know that created odd odd barneys I mean yeah yeah there was a uh, a famous row about fifa once that lasted uh, like an entire day right. and just kept flaring up and i think there were like three different points where people went into a private meeting room to like sh- to sort of fight it out and then would come out and it'd be like peace is restored and then like two hours later it would all flare up again right it was just yeah a really weird time <laughs> <laughs> this is also the year i went for a features editor job on a major website and didn't even get a response and i was like oh, oh. If, like have i just done this entire like games media career for nothing there was that kind of moment i had in my head like oh, i was like I can't, I can't even get heard out when i'm like making a games magazine that sucked so more on the game side matthew uh, i suppose then this is the wii u year for you so uh, like aside from the personal drama stuff what was this yeah. year what was 2012 like with on the game side for you yeah so th- like th- I think 3DS had enough kind of cool stuff that it was ticking over. Like every once in a while, there were, you know, every month there was something big and interesting on 3DS. I felt like we could get our teeth into maybe not magazine sellers, but, um, you know, pl- plenty of big, big hitters and kind of like some of the things that had been announced first that had maybe been given a bit more time. So like Resident Evil Revelations, say, kind of was felt quite kind of prestige compared to like some of the launch games, things like that. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of Wii U, I must admit, like, and I'm sure we'll get to this when we talk about E3, like, E3 was a bit of a disaster for Wii U, and it kind of felt like it doomed the machine. Like, I've never really seen, like, the concept of something die on its ass so quickly, and then we were just gripped by a, well, you know, we're now the official Nintendo magazine, and we have to kind of, not sugarcoat this, but, you know, we had to put on the official Nintendo sort of veneer again, People didn't want to hear that the thing they were buying was terrible, and we didn't want to work on a magazine that was just slagging it off. So we we definitely found the positives, and it helped that we you know hired Joe Scrabs, who was like an incredibly positive presence, and you know could I don't want to say he could find like the positive spin on stuff, but he just took he took great joy in a lot of things, and you know actually was going to like say 
you know, reading some old issues for this period, you know, going back in them, and it's like, man alive, like that Duke, he is, he's so fucking good, like from the off. It's like I, I, you know, compared to like my first stuff on Endgame, it took me several years to really get in the groove. But he just like absolutely hit the ground running. And I know he'll be, if he listens to this, he'll be super embarrassed to hear that. But you know, it has to be said, like truly, truly brilliant staff writer from day one, hmm. um, which helped because then you're like, well, I want to be positive too because you don't want to be, you know, I had had that. I had had people on Endgamer who were super down on Wii and kind of ground me down a bit. And I, I didn't want that. I wanted like, yeah, I'm going to feed off his positivity. I'm going to feed on, his, you know, help feed his positivity. So that really helped. Um, and we just existed also in the bubble that the mag sold quite well uh, compared to Nintendo Gamer. So I just like enjoyed being red, um, which helped get over the lumpiness of Wii U, I think. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that may sound really self-serving, but it's true. You were like, oh, great. Like each of these issues sells like five times as much as an issue of Endgame. I mean, that's nice. Like, it feels like people may actually hear it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know what you mean, yeah. It's interesting because the, the year is, like, full of, like... I think that Xbox is a bit depressing this year. PlayStation 3 is a bit depressing this year. I would say that it's quite a good year. It, this is a year I really noticed that PC gaming was starting to, like, properly be a, a thing. Right, like in terms a thing again, I suppose. Like in terms of the rise of sort of um, indie games taking off and stuff. This is a year that like Dear Esther comes out and like um, uh, FTL comes out, and there's like the return of some quite um, very PC style games, like um, PC genres that we'll get into. I'm sure when we get to our top tens. Um, so there's there's that going on. This is the year that Hotline Miami comes out. It feels like this is a proper like this is the moment where all that breaking through is happening, and I'm mm. sort of like aware suddenly that maybe not all of the best stuff is happening on console anymore which is quite an interesting mm. sea change yeah in terms of major events this year matthew so we had like um the ps vita launch in february the wii u launch in november um this is also the year that diablo 3 came out that was a famously flawed launch with that um preposterous um uh auction house thing where people could sell weapons for like real money and i just <laughs> yeah. i stopped listening to a podcast a games podcast at the time because some dude boasted about how he sold once or like one side for like 60 dollars or something and made his money back on the game and i was like the fact that you're celebrating this is terrible um i'm never listening <laughs> that to is podcast such a, again. that's such a you move <laughs> <laughs> i love that you just part your relationship over one hand <laughs> that'll be people listening to me and my opinions on um on various <laughs> on assassin's creed or whatever but yeah um yeah so <laughs> there was that going on but um yeah it was like it was a bit of a bit of a depressing time for games and a bit of a depressing time for mags like it feels like those two things happened at the same time do you know what i mean yeah, like um yeah even though there are definitely good games here i suppose like on a lighter <laughs> Matthew what were you watching pop culture wise back in 2012 were you able to kind of track that in your head not really I was just cause I, like I just think you're moving to because this this is the year that like Netflix becomes a thing right yeah yeah I think it launches in the UK this year yeah yeah so wouldn't this been sort of like house of cards kind of period that was 2013 I believe oh, okay all right it's pretty that um yeah uh to be honest it's 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 all such a blur like all I really remember from this year is like moving to London and shattering the roof of the floor below me with all my heavy luggage. Um, so, yeah, weird year. <laughs> yeah, okay, fair. Um, no, I just remember this as like a fairly big movie year because it was the year like Avengers came out and The Dark Knight Rises and... Um, oh, Social Network, was that this year? Uh, that was 2010, I think. Um, oh. Did your research, <laughs> I can see, that's good. <laughs> 
no, the only reason I say that is one of my favourite news spreads we did in Nintendo Gamer was about, like, I think Nintendo were going to get rid of friend codes, or there was some big Barney about, like, what Nintendo's next online system was going to be. Right, right. And the, 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 the news spread was a mock-up of the poster, and it was something like, yeah, you don't get to invent friend codes without making a few enemies. Right, right. Which, which was like the, you know, you don't get a billion friends without making a few enemies. And it was the same font over a picture of a water instead of Zuckerberg. Right. Um, <laughs> Very strange good. in retrospect, like that. that kind yeah, of like but a, if yeah. that film was like two years before, then yeah, like that was not a timely reference. <laughs> Oh, amazing. I love that. The- no wonder they shot that fucking disaster of a man. <laughs> I love that you thought, well, the film must have come out in 2010 because we did our parody in 2012 because we did our parody that year. But like, no, you were just late. That's amazing. <laughs> oh, so good. That's so good. That's like, that is inventive, though. Um, it is funny because I do remember, like, I, the, the, I think I've got, like, a, a one issue of uh, Nintendo Gamer in my flat. And it does look more more official looking than um, Endgamer did. Um, mm. And, like, uh, that's kind of weird in a way. Like, you couldn't ever quite see it being the mag where that bad picture of Mario Santa would be on the cover. Do you know what I mean? Right, like, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, it, it wasn't a matter. I mean, at this point, like the art editor on Nintendo Gamer was was Milf, on um, who previously was art editor on uh, PSM three, and it, like is just he's one of like Future's like art geniuses. Yeah, um, not that our art team wasn't on Nintendo Gamer, but like like Milf did some amazing fucking stuff with Nintendo Gamer. Like that's definitely the period I became way more invested in how things looked. Like on Endgamer, I didn't really care as much. Yeah, because it was part of the kind of you know it's just a big old like car boot sale of content, which was the mag. And this all of a sudden, I I was like, oh, actually, I really do like a very artsy fartsy layout. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. No, no, I, I was sort of very much the same. It's funny because on play, we were so boxed in by the games we were allowed to put on the cover. It was just a bit, of, a bit depressing. It was like a revolving door of like Tomb Raider 2013 which was like being mega hyped at the time, had loads of lovely artwork, very happy to put that on the cover, a very exciting game. Um, And then like, you know, like I say, God of War Ascension, where there wasn't good artwork for it and there wasn't like much excitement in the game. And then like um, Revengeance, which I think I had shot down at one point. And then like they wouldn't let us put DMC on the cover, if I recall, because they just thought it looked a bit... I also ran compared to the other Devil May Cry games when in, in retrospect that game's got a great reputation justifiably and so I felt like I was just like oh well what are the two games they actually want me to put on this cover and it felt it made the mag feel even more hemmed in it's like our options are so slim and like whatever I pick there's only so much creativity you can really kind of apply to it anyway and I found that really right. just depressing yeah I mean the thing is when they let you do what you want it is because like you're on the chopping block <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't necessarily think that. I just think that, like, it, it, it's like a culture thing. Back on pop culture, I completely forgot this was the year of the Avengers. Uh, I think that's the first film I went to see with Catherine on a quote-unquote date. Uh, I, th- I think I say I think that was the first MCU film where I complained about the theme tune on Twitter. Oh, like... and I definitely did that, and I probably <laughs> would have done that to Catherine after seeing it. So <laughs> it obviously didn't like poison the well back then. Uh, our second date, because if people are wondering, was to see the Grizzly Opera Musical Sweeney Todd. That's good. <laughs> the kind of like full cultural range of your uh, sort of um, you know your diet there is kind of like uh, you know broken down quite nicely. That's like the two Matthew and Catherines there. It's like yeah. Op- Opera one day, Morbius the other. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so, <laughs> I did... Uh, the other thing is, the back page of Nintendo Gamer was where I did the spoof of What Are Asks interviews, which right. 
people really got into. They were like the one thing I ever did in mags that got some like pick up online. Like Kotaku wrote news stories about them going like, these are really funny from this British mag. I was like, oh my God, I've done it. I've finally broken out. <laughs> um, and they were all riffing on like pop culture of the day because one of them was the Water Asks Hawkeye from the Avengers. And it was just loads of really cheap shots about why you need an archer in the Avengers, the most tired fucking Avengers joke of all time. <laughs> um, but, you know, delivered by my kind of faux Iwata talk, it seemed all right. Okay, good, um, yeah. Oh, I wish there was an archive of those. So maybe that out-of-print archive dude on Twitter can just find a load of those and tweet them out. That'd be good. Yeah. Um, I yeah. used to, the, incidentally, they because they were like, they caused me so much stress. Like, at the start of every issue, I had it hanging over me. Like, oh, I have to deliver another of these. And, like, they made, like, the first one really made Tim Weaver laugh, which, you know, is kind of quite, you know, we laughed a lot in the office, but making someone laugh in... in you know, in words, I think it's is, is slightly harder sometimes. And so I remember having that as a real badge of honour. I was like, yes, I've finally done it. I've finally written something actually, like, properly funny in the mag. And because of that, I became obsessed with them and would, spe- you know, really diva-ish, where it'd be like, oh, you've got a spare half hour. Could you just bang out the back page? It's like, no, it's not ready yet. I haven't, you know, I'm still <laughs> right, working Don on Draper. it. I'm still working <laughs> on it. I used to literally go for walks talking to myself as a water in the character to try and get the jokes <laughs> Like, genuinely, I used to take my phone with me and write down one-liners that I was coming up with. I've never worked so hard on something which is so forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine you put that effort into writing, like, one sitcom script to send to the BBC or something. Like, uh, Yeah. But, oh. no. Uh, I get it, though. No. I get it. <laughs> I do like the idea that, like, yeah, this kind of, like, Don Draper-esque thing of, like, do I still have it? And it's, like, two days for deadline. And, like, Tim Weaver's, like, uh, not sure you've got it in you anymore, Matthew. Don't think you're... <laughs> Not sure, not sure you, this one's really landing. Then you get the gag. You're like, I've got it. You have that eureka moment. And then it's like gold and you've saved yourself for another month. And then uh, amazing. Um, <laughs> do you also wonder if maybe your focus on that was kind of a psychological kind of reaction to like the, the bullshit going on around you a little bit? Like, was there a bit of like, well, I you kind of like maybe knowing that things are like on the chopping block a bit. And so you're kind of like, well, I'll focus on this one thing because it brings me great joy. Um, is there yeah, that kind of there, element to it or was it not that I, I think because it was also one especially end gamerish part of nintendo gamer right maybe i held on to it like there were there were like five bits of there were five regulars in nintendo gamer which were like classic end gamer bits there was like the water asks there was a professor Layton agony uncle column which charlotte used to write which i really liked i think there's kirby's rumor buffet with the catchphrase because he'll swallow anything um <laughs> that was actually tim clark who wrote that nice. uh wrote the he'll swallow anything that was his <laughs> that was his gag um uh and we used to do like me i think it was called me news network and it was like a news story like a current affairs story from the day so this was like pre-brexit i guess this was, it, it was there was a lot of like newt gingrich, gingrich jokes in it right. and it was like it was using the ar function of the 3ds to take to recreate like in six panels, like quite dry news stories. Okay. Um, but it just meant my 3DS was just full of like me's of popular political figures of the day. Right. I had I had like a Nick Clegg me and an Ed Miliband me. <laughs> That's the most 2012 ass. Like, uh, <laughs> like, is there anything more 2012 than a Nick Clegg me on a 3DS? Because like... <laughs> I was doing Nick Clegg me based satire. <laughs> oh, amazing. Um, yeah, good stuff. Okay, cool. So, 
Matthew, um, briefly, which um, what press trips did you do this year? So I went to the Halo 4 Studio 343 um, for that one. Um, I think I was on, still on Sci-Fi Now at the time for this one, but... <laughs> We went sometime after summer. You went to that weird ass town. No, that's well. That was when I went to three four three the second time, and they'd moved offices to another weird kind of like um, prefabricated Microsoft town in Washington. Um, Right. This was the first time I went to one of those fake towns. Um, This one was a bit nicer, actually, a bit less Silent Hillish, and it was quite a sunny time. And I saw some Newfoundland dogs swimming in a lake. It was very sweet. But um, great. um, So yeah, that was. um, And then they had like these kind of like beautiful kind of like balcony that had a view of the town and stuff. And I met Frank O'Connor and all those three four three devs. They were like so accommodating with people. About four or five hours of hands on. Really good trip. Um, How about you? I mean, like um, your E three thing here. What was that? What was that all like? Yeah, so E3 was, like I say, the, the weird thing about that was it was the big unveiling of the Wii U, so it's that kind of deep breath, are they going to biff it, answer, yes. And also kind of working with Chandra for the first time, like that's where we kind of met in person. I think maybe we'd done like a, I want to say we'd done a video call, we must have met before before that, because I sort of semi-interviewed sort of interviewed for the job. I, I'm, I'm being very careful to say they didn't just give me the job as you applied for it, I don't want you to feel bad. You know, I, I did. I did the interview and go through it. They didn't just hand it to me on a plate. No, say. that's fine. It was um, um, if I hadn't gone for that interview, I wouldn't have got the PC gamer job the next year because um, oh, Tim, right. Tim Tim interviewed me. So you know, yeah, it's yeah. all good in the well, end, was, my friend. All good yes, in the end. Good, good. <laughs> um, yeah. So I met I met Chandra there, um, and so it was that weird thing of like we were like working out what was going on with Wii U. I think we had like the mag was like a week from deadline. Neither of us had worked on it at that point, so we inherited the mag mid issue. Neither of us had met the team at that point, I don't think. I was also trying to work out how I was going to live in London because I had to move to London like around E3. And we were sort of feeling each other out in terms of like, what's this a person like? Because we'd never worked together. So there was, yeah, just a lot of business going on with all that. Um, This was basically at E3, if you were a Nintendo journalist, you just went to Nintendo stand and nothing else. And you just tried to get as much time with the demos as possible. So, uh, you know, there was a lot of Nintendo land, but there was also, like, there was a really good Pikmin 3 demo. There was the wonderful 101 demo, which was mysteriously buried, like, not mentioned in the, you know, that they had this new Kamiya game. And, you know, it basically took a week of uh, the whole three days of E3 or whatever of constantly replaying this demo to kind of get your head around it and go, oh, I think this is going to be a bit special, actually. I'm really surprised they didn't talk more about this. So, yeah, like, kind of, I associate that E3 with just so much personal drama as well as the just trying to get my head around like just what the fuck were you was gonna be yeah yeah okay fair enough yeah so and then i guess you were just so fixated on that nintendo booth you didn't have much perspective of what was going on elsewhere right the only other thing i remember going to do was like square enix to do a theat rhythm interview which oh, yeah. was their final fantasy um rhythm game nice game man. um yeah it was really nice but again like i just a big phony with anything final fantasy because they've got someone who's like really up for talking about it, and he was a really good interviewer. I just had really duff like amateur hour questions, which was bad. Yeah, um, think, of, also, think like, of all uh, the tens of people who read that interview who were offended by your lack of knowledge <laughs> about Final Fantasy, Matthew. <laughs> uh, so yeah, like uh, yeah, and also just writing stuff for the site, you know, because that was always part of the deal of being at E3. I wasn't used to ever writing for online, so just having to see stuff and then churn stuff out to send it home. Um, that was all quite quite unusual for me. Um, do you eat any kind of like um, preposterous American food when you're out there? I don't think so. I think this is the year I... Uh, no, no, sorry. No interesting answers. 
Oh, amazing. I will cut that pause down for people listening, um, but like I will keep it in for comedic effect. Um, I'll, just, I'll just make it slightly shorter. Okay, good stuff. Uh, you've also written our plan here, Mad Borderlands 2 weekend, Matthew. What's all that about? I, I So I don't know how this came about, but when I was working on O&M in London, Games Master were like, do you want to do Borderlands 2 review for us freelance, but you have to go to their offices over a weekend and play it? Right. Um, which I agreed to because I, you know, wanted some money because London was really expensive, and as I was learning, and yeah, I so I went to the yeah two K's offices in Windsor, and it was like just me and the PR, and it was like felt like I'd broken into the office or something because it was all shut down, all the lights were off, and it was just a PR sitting outside the room, me sitting in the room, and he just gave me so many sweets and so <laughs> much cola, I was just. My mind was just like exploding with sugar. I was—I compl- have no idea if I got Borderlands Two right or wrong, because I think my head was just in such a messy place of like sugar high. And you know, he was basically like, "You can stay in the office as long as you want, and I'll go home when you go to your hotel." So you know, I only had like three days with it or something to try and play as much Borderlands Two as possible. I was absolutely frazzled. Um, so yeah. That was just a, a strange, a very strange thing that happened. Like, if someone had come in at the office at the weekend to, like, get their stuff, they would have found this, like, weird, smelly boy kind of going hyperactive with Borderlands 2. Yeah. Um, Thinking, I, I think I know the PR you mean, and he's uh, a lot of fun, if I recall. So he might yeah. have just thought, um, I'll just ply him with sugar and then he'll be happy because he kind of knew your whole deal. Um, that was... Yeah. <laughs> oh, and he was right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, good. And that's how uh, Borderlands 2 got 99% in Games Master. Uh, <laughs> that's um, how I invented a number, a new kind of number, an entire new scoring system. For it. <laughs> it's just two symbols um, of, the, of alien origin. Yeah, very good. Um, Matthew, let's take a quick break and then we'll fire through what was going on at E3 so we can get to the games. Because the games chatter is ultimately what matters more, isn't it? So let's um, take a quick break and come back. Let's do it. back to the podcast so this could be a super brief section i'm sure um, people want to get to the games at this point and we do too we're just going to talk about what was going on at e3 at the time i mentioned the major uh, launches that happened this year ps vita in february wii u in november um so those are the big things that were going on the generations were very much winding down for sony and microsoft some great games but not really from them i would say in this year um there's like a, a bunch of games that were, were making my list probably about 15 in total jostling for a place but mm. none of them were Sony or Microsoft games. Well, one was a Microsoft game, but that's it. Um, so, yeah, the, and the common theme, like I say, was four sequels that weren't hotly desired. God of War Ascension and Judgment. You know, perfectly fine games, like eight out of ten games. But just um, maybe the sheen had gone off those series a little bit. They weren't as exciting as they were. They mm. were kind of symptomatic of the generation going on a bit too long to me. It's like, well, we'll do the same thing again a little bit because we kind of have to, you know, we have to kind of make it, make it go a bit further or what have you. So... Yeah, um, Xbox... It feels like that stuff kind of has to happen, though, for then everyone to reboot and do really good work with PS4. That is true to an extent, but I would say that, like, this generation, just nav- they just navigated it a lot better by having more kind of cross-gen games mm. and, like, stuff that felt like it was... I don't know, they would... I don't know. It just felt like that. The, 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 this last generation just didn't really, really run out of steam. Obviously, you don't have, like, loads of... Um, 
Microsoft exclusives in the second half of the generation. But you get you have stuff like Gears Five and you know like um, yeah. Forza Horizons are always dependably good, of course. And there's like always there's always stuff. Um, Halo Infinite's a cross gen game. Like it feels mm. like it just didn't. There wasn't that full stop and then a start again. It's kind of like the generations carried on, but with um, shinier looking things, which I'm perfectly fine with. This generation, mm. it feels like it just sort of absolutely peters out. Um, and I think that the A3 conferences for Xbox and Sony reflect this. I watched both of them in um, in kind of like fast forward uh, to, for this episode, <laughs> and they were like really boring. Um, <laughs> and like you, the art of these gets like they they get better at them very quickly. I would say um, the next generation because the next E3 is so significant in terms of like what happens in this generation. It feels mm. like everyone the showmanship factor goes up a notch. I would say. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Did you have any kind of overall thoughts about Xbox and Sony this year, Matthew? No, I mean, like, going going through your list, it is, like you say, it's all a little bit like Gears Judgment, which, yeah. as you say, is just, yeah, totally the shine off it. And things that were once absolutely the most exciting thing that could happen, you were just so bored of them by now. Yeah. But you do get some other stuff, I guess, sort of surfaces around then. I don't know if it happens at E3, but, like, Far Cry 3 feels like quite an important game in terms of it it sort of feels like the new template for Ubisoft games, which is now just dominated like massively over the last few years. Like particularly Far Cry three you know, may not be a better game than Far Cry two, but it feels like the more important game in so many ways. Yeah, I think that's actually true in terms of like I, I didn't really think about the impact of it. Because I always thought of like, oh well Assassin's Creed must be the game that kind of motivates everything. But it's true that when you think about how games use maps and open world design, maybe it is more Far Cry than Assassin's Creed. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah. Either way, like, yeah, very influential game. So I'll just fire through what Xbox is doing, Matthew. So Mm-mm. Halo 4 kicks off this show. Um, very nice looking, of course. 343's first Halo game, now that Bungie's gone off to make Destiny. Then Don Matcher comes on stage, talks about Xbox being the perfect place for social movies, talks about Connect. It's just like... <laughs> A lot of the seeds of what would go wrong next year are planted here a bit. It's like eye off the ball. We're not talking about games, talking about Connect first. But to be fair to Microsoft, this um, there are some like full fat games um, throughout this. You've got Splinter Cell Blacklist, which I know is um, considered a bit of a lesser Splinter Cell game um, by you, mm-hmm. which is, you know, and who else's opinion do I care about, frankly? There's some boring football stuff. There's like both a, a FIFA <laughs> and a Madden section of this thing. And it's like... Oof. And they, there's a there's a, an, a like a middle aged sportsman during the Madden one who I assume is some kind of American football dude. Uh, it's not John Madden himself. I checked. Um, which that's like one of the most boring things I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> just tedious. Um, there's um, Fable: The Journey, which makes a really good showing here. I never played this. I always heard it's a bit flawed, but I was always interested in this. It's like I always thought it was the only true Connect sort of blockbuster that was made. Um, a lot of the Ooh. other games had a slightly different profile. Did you ever play this one, Matthew? Um, like a little bit. I don't even know how I played this because I didn't own it. Yeah. I mean, did someone else have it in the flat or I borrowed a copy from work or something? Um, yeah, it wasn't really for me. And I'm like a big, big Fable guy. So um, I think maybe I was just a bit too sort of militant, like not my Fable um, in that kind of tiresome way. Yeah. But, uh, maybe I should go back and um, 
like become a big fable the journey guy <laughs> <laughs> that's like of all the things that won't happen this year that's like number one i would say um you, you getting a con- you getting a connect out and bothering to play it. it's not going to happen my well, friend. like if we ever did a big fable deep dive episode that oh. would be the hot take wouldn't it it's oh, like God. i went back i got out the connect i got the journey and i'm i'm actually here to say i think <laughs> fable journey is the one <laughs> Nothing. Oh God, that makes me want to not do that Fable episode. Just knowing that one of us has to do that, and then the subsequent games court where I get drowned for buying a Connect on eBay. Um, that's like it's not worth it, frankly. Um, so from there, there's like um, a very boring ad with a bloke from Supernatural uh, putting Monday Night Football on with Connect. Just not. Uh, just like and then Nike Plus Connect training. Yay! Just like all this stuff that's lifestyley but doesn't have much value. Xbox Smart Glass. I can't say I ever remember what that is. I think it's something to do with turning your devices in. All your devices can become Xbox control mechanisms. Who knows? Tomb Raider 2013 gameplay. Now we're cooking with gas. That's what I put in my notes here. Very shiny looking. Um, lots of death. Uh, this I thought this game was rad. It was the, it was like one of the best sort of um, reboots of a game series I've seen in terms of like just having its own tone, its own angle on mm. what they wanted to do and then executing on it. Arguably went a bit too trad after that, but then we, we can re- litigate that in a few future episode. Ascend New Gods, a Kinect game I never remember or heard of. Um, <laughs> Resident Evil 6 was on stage. They seemed so optimistic about a game that people would hate, um, <laughs> but I liked it. So fair play, Capcom. Did you like it enough to put in your top 10? That's the question. Well, we'll have to get to that, won't we? Um, <laughs> um, uh, part Parker and Stone, the creators of South Park, come on stage and introduce South Park, the stick of truth, a game I fucking love. I look forward to talking about that in a future episode. That's like one of the best times of all time. Uh, then Usher is on stage. Usher, the worst part of the, um, uh, the that film with Jennifer Lopez, uh, Hustlers. This was that was like that that was the worst part when Usher turned up, and it was the worst part of this conference when he turned up here uh, to promote Dance Central Three. I should sh- really see the correlation that just turning up isn't really a strong suit. <laughs> He's well, he- like, well, listen, I turned up at E3 and I turned up in Hustlers, and neither were that well received by <laughs> Samuel Roberts of the Back Page Podcast. Well, it's like, Hustlers is a great film. Like that's a it really good film. Good I wouldn't film. say I was like, oh, it lost me when Usher was there. <laughs> Well, it didn't lose me. It's just that, like, I don't know. I think, like, Hustlers and Widows are weirdly, like, a similar types of films. And, like, they're both great versions of, like, you know, the kind of, like, female-led heist film. Like, they're really, like, really good. But one doesn't have Usher in it. And I'm afraid it's got the edge with me as a result. Um, <laughs> I just like the idea of you watching Hustlers at the cinema and Usher comes on screen. And in your head, you're thinking, hmm, a bit Xbox Conference 2012. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but to be fair to Usher, he was on stage, like, dancing and stuff. He had to do a performance in front of people. Oh, that's probably, tough. probably the least accommodating audience for him in the world that could possibly exist. Um, <laughs> well, I imagine like Don Matrix standing to the side, like clapping out of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I've written down here, wild oscillation between total horseshit and good games of the time. Um, mm. We end with uh, COD Black Ops 2. By this point, I didn't give a, I didn't really care about COD anymore. Um, I played five minutes of this game where, where Sam Worthington was on horseback and I was like, nope, that's enough for me. Um, I was done after Modern Warfare. Um, so that's Xbox. Um, they were like, like they were just trying to like um, service all masters at once here, and it was just a bit, a bit just a bit overstretched. Um, mm. And they maybe lack the kind of like, just like can you compare this this era of Xbox to the era that had like you know Crackdown, Mass Effect, and Bioshock, and all these things that were like legit exclusive and cool yeah. in the earlier part of the generation? It just doesn't even compare. And that's like, it's hard to divorce that from 
Matrick himself, because Matrick, you know, comes in uh, just after that, basically, and then the the culture seems to change, and everyone's eyes off the ball a little bit with big exclusives, um, you know. But inadvertently, he is kind of responsible <laughs> for like uh, Xbox acquiring all the game developers in the universe from all of this stuff. It, this is kind of the seed of all that happening here. So, um, mm. yeah, um, Sony at E three. Um, kicks off with uh, everyone, a games journalist's uh, favourite creator, David Cage. Um, Beyond Two Souls, um, Elliot Page uh, being in the game was a big deal. They announced that here. Um, PlayStation All-Stars Battle Royale, Matthew's um, favourite Smash Bros. Uh, beta um, was uh, revealed here. Did look very also ran, very kind of muddy looking colours. So I was watching footage of this, so I was like, ugh, uh, that's rough. Um, it was a solid game, though, when it came out. I it was very like enjoyable, kind of brawling. Nothing wrong with the fundamentals of it, just... Um, Sony didn't quite have the uh, the oomph at the time for that for that one. Um, Still have the mascots. No, very much not. So uh, yeah, Matthew Castle not won over by um, one of the Hell Gan from Killzone and uh, <laughs> oh, Sly <yes>. Cooper <laughs> at last. Um, I can't wait to see Kirby Helgen. <laughs> Um, so yeah, there was some uh, cross play was talked about here between PS3 and Vita. I sort of dozed off a bit of that bit. Um, <laughs> PS Plus uh, getting a good response here. It's easy to forget what a good deal that was. Uh, this month they gave away twelve games at once. That's like kind of amazing. Whoa. I think. Yeah, that was like really really good. Assassin's Creed Three was there, but they focused on showing off the ship combat, which uh, everyone knows is the best part of that game. Um, that won't come up in honourable mentions for me, Matthew. Will it come up for you? Not at all. I played that on Wii U, so it was like Assassin's Creed 3 plus quite bad frame rate. <laughs> right. Um, awful. Oh, man. That game has, like, a large section of that game is walking around dark uh, tunnels under the cities. One of the worst hours of any game is trying to create the secret underground railroad under Boston in that game. Right. It's fucking abysmal. Is there any good level that takes you into some tunnels like i mean like generally like i always think about dragon age and the deep rose in this where it's like we're gonna put you in a corridor with just stones surrounding you for three hours have fun and like they're never good are they no they're never good like you know elden ring obviously does underworld it's not a tunnel it's there is there's like a realm beneath which is pretty spectacular metro i guess is like a good tunnel that is a very good point those are some legit tunnels right there um but that is someone who is like our game is only set in tunnels, so we're going to have to work really hard within the constraints of this tunnel. Yeah. Which is, I think you have to do. You have to acknowledge the tunnel is the worst place to set a game, but yeah. not everyone does. I think Assassin's Creed 3 is the true nadir of the series in terms of like the simplicity of it. It dialed back the combat and platforming, so everything was like a one-button press. Just like yeah. really unengaging. I do, I, I do like the initial kind of twist thing where you play as that other bloke and then he turns out to be like the baddie i think that's quite fun yeah he's your father and stuff and yeah yeah and he's cut you you're kind of setting up the templars rather than the assassins sorry spoiler alert i think some people really hate the ending of this game where the british are kind of driven out and then the game's like yeah but america's still got a fuckload of problems like um you basically see slaves being sold and stuff and people criticize it as being a bit on the nose i would argue quite bold it was like one of the only bits of the story that really landed for me it was like Mm. yeah the british are gone the british fucking sucked they're gone but also this country oh my god has like a fucking long way to go and like Mm. i just thought that was i thought that that kind of stayed with me i don't remember the execution 
in my head that much but i just remember like connor just like hobbling through boston and like it was just i just thought that was quite i don't know maybe like it takes a canadian developer to take that kind of swing i couldn't ever see an american developer doing that maybe i'm wrong but american Mm. blockbuster developer couldn't see them going that anti-american with it but um yeah i like that about this but otherwise wasn't really big on assassin's creed 3 do you have any more thoughts on that one matthew no just just fuck the tunnels (laughs) fuck the tunnels matthew castle um yep uh far cry 3 was here um that was obviously a very significant game uh some less sexy playstation move stuff there's like some kind of harry potter book of spells thing um but there was briefly a book peripheral on ps3 um <laughs> people may not it's remember qu- that it's it's quite funny actually like just seeing how different the vibe is back then where i was reading some news coverage of this and they're like oh this is terrible harry potter book but you know luckily jk rowling turns up to save the day oh, and God. you're like man like the vibe is <laughs> the vibe around her is very different back then <laughs> yeah so uh, it was it kind of seems a bit like naff there's some good god of war ascension footage but it's a, it's a bit like again like i say it feels like a god of war 3 again a little bit Has until you get played god of war ascension uh john denton has i remember he reviewed it for me when i was on play i commissioned it to him he quite enjoyed it if i recall but i don't know if we do a god we're gonna do a god of war episode this year we'll, we'll yeah, have to play I, it I, I, that's the, yeah that's the one we'll have to play i've just i couldn't even tell you one thing about it <laughs> it's a prequel i think like um i think it's a prequel to all three of the games so i think you like is it co-op uh it's i think it had competitive multiplayer um, right yeah it's meant to be pretty good competitive so yeah you can everyone can look forward to that incredibly well-researched god of war episode <laughs> <laughs> i think it's co-op and i think there was a guy called kratos in it <laughs> <laughs> um so this conference though ends with footage of the last of us the first gameplay footage and uh, it did look really really good um you know this would this game had already been uh sort of like revealed and people were hu- hyped about a, a new naughty dog uh sort of game um, but here it kind of like looks the part. It's kind of like there's nothing bullshotty about it. it. Like it's it's real gameplay of a game that people would love. Um, we can uh, talk about that game in more detail next year. But that was good. Um, but uh, Matthew, Nintendo E3, this is your domain. So why don't you uh, kick us off? Yeah, like starts with you think, oh, this is going to be OK. Cause it starts with like a little sketch where they go and get like Miyamoto from his uh, waiting room. And the idea is, like, there's Pikmin everywhere. So they start with, like, a real core game, Pikmin. And Pikmin 3, um, to be fair to it, like, is amazing and is, like, by far the best Pikmin game. And like, that is not a series I cared for. I did not like Pikmin 1 and 2 very much. I found them very stressful. Like, their attempts to, like, Nintendo-ify the strategy game just didn't work for me. I still found it very cumbersome. But 3, like, everything about it just absolutely sang like that game came alive for me. So they started really strong. I've noted down, Miyamoto looks absolutely amazing in this sketch. Yeah, I did see that. In the comedy intro, Miyamoto looks fucking amazing, super handsome. That's what he does. He's like... Like not like massively, you know. He's not you know particularly old now. You know, he's old. He's always he's always old. <laughs> he's older now, obviously. <laughs> um, but yeah, he just looks like his skin looks great. He's wearing this like white t-shirt. He just looks very um, yeah, just super super healthy. Really, yeah, really very like pleasant <laughs> pleasant man to look at. <laughs> the last time I saw someone look this good on camera was the uh, Metal Gear Solid Legacy documentary um, <laughs> where Matthew Castle appeared. Um yeah, that's yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So that's that's a, that's a good start. Um but it's just this I I'd say after Pitman 3, I think this shows just a total disaster because, you know, Reggie comes out and in that kind of style of him, he's very bullish about like 
you know, what a proposition the Wii U is. And it's entirely unconvincing. Like, everything he says is... It just, just doesn't feel like he believes it. It doesn't feel like anyone believes it. Like, you... I, I think you can almost feel it on stage that, that Nintendo already knows that Wii U's doomed at this point. Mm. Um, and, you know, the fact that, like, their big... What gets big stage time is, like, ty- like tired ports of, like, weird sequels. Not weird sequels, but, like, sequels to series that have never been on Nintendo. That, that sort of set off alarm bells. The fact they have this sort of Batman, um, Arkham City, and, you know, it's, you know, obviously you can jump in there, but... The idea of that being like a huge sell to Nintendo people, like you get to play one of these, it's quite an old game. I don't know if Arkham Knight had been announced at that time, but you know, everyone has moved on, and here's Nintendo going, get excited about this, and then they show off very unconvincing gamepad features for a lot of these games, where it really just feels like we've taken things which worked perfectly well on an analog stick and made some like faff on the touchscreen. Right. Um, and this is, this is, I'd say is the, the defining feature of this conference is they just do not make a convincing case for Wii U. It feels like they don't have a convincing case for Wii U, even Nintendo land, which I like quite a lot, you know, in its eventual form, I'd say only half of it is is a decent advert for like, oh, there is potential here. There is something else going on. You're like, oh, this is getting all my sort of like neurons firing. I can see what Wii U could be. It's like even Nintendo is struggling to do anything interesting with this this contraption. I think that's what made it feel slightly doomed to me. It was like, oh, this is bad. Like, there's this, the innovation here is is very worrying. Like, what was interesting about Pikmin was like the Wii is a bit more powerful, so it's like the HD graphics rather than the controller scheme. Mm. Um, so that's that's all very worrying. There's just too much Reggie in this, and I, I found him, you know, we used to joke about him a lot in the Mac, but towards the end, I, I found him quite a kind of like charmless presence in a lot of these things. Like, I've, I've really called on him over the years. He's like a big, he's he's just, big PR he's just, man, you know, basically, yeah. He, yeah, he's just a suit. Um, you know, and maybe that has been coloured by seeing some spicy takes um, <laughs> from some ex Nintendo staff on Twitter, <laughs> um, which I won't go into. But you occasionally people see people saying, "Yeah, like he's just a suit. Like he'll just say anything to to get you to play this stuff." It's not like a he, you know he isn't a Nintendo guy. He isn't a Miyamoto, obviously. But yeah. um, I think we elevated him with like memes. Um, plus he so, was um, plus he would participate in those kind of memes himself and become he, he he became a figure of fun because he would appear in those skits as well right so yeah. yeah I think the worst bit of this conference is him talking to Harley Quinn from right. Batman Arkham City because it's not even like a model it's just a static image of Harley Quinn it's like a JPEG <laughs> on this giant screen and he and and like the voice they've got the voice actress to sort of do a bit of banter where she announces like the president of uh, warner brothers is to come on and talk about batman and it just feels like so budget it's like this game is from several years ago this feels really cheap everything about this makes me feel bad um <laughs> the fact is they had more interesting games like the wonderful 101 they didn't even mention at their stage presentation like, i just this was so muddled um, and I think, like, over the years, they do claw some of this back. Like, weirdly, in Wii U, they they kind of get a bit more hardcore in places, and that's maybe more successful. But, I mean, it's telling. This is their last stage conference. Yeah. Um, from this point on, it's just their more kind of Nintendo Direct-style thing, which actually is a huge improvement and a very successful model, I'd say, because um, it just cuts out all the bullshit, and, you know, it's quite fun and frothy. Um the Nintendo Land finale to this was just such a wash as well. Like it just felt like, 
you know, you played all those demos last year, and now we've kind of prettied them up a bit and put more of a Nintendo skin on them. But it felt like oh, it felt like you were finishing with old news. However good those games ended up being, this was just this just didn't get me excited. My heart really, really sank um, during this conference. Um, I remember sit, I was sitting with Chandra, and we were both at the end of it. We were like, "Fucking yikes! This is going to be a hard sell." So. Yeah, sorry, Nintendo fans. This was an apps. I think this is probably the this this. I think this is a contender for the Nintendo's worst ever E3. Yeah, completely fair. Um, did the uh good the good 3DS games in uh included balance out at all, Matthew? Your Castlevanias and the like. Whether you um yeah, did that help was, to alleviate there was, it? There was definitely more happening there. The fact that they sent on this slightly sheepish exec to say like. I'm going to have a 3DS Direct tomorrow. It made it sound like he was, like, the only one. Like, the joke was that, like, like Reggie was above or, like, beyond 3DS at this point. Right. You know, he's like, I'm going to give you, like, a minute to talk about your bullshit, basically. Right. And then the guy comes out and he's like, oh, everyone tune in tomorrow and I'm going to talk about our actually good games on 3DS. Yeah. Um, like, their 3DS uh, site was way better, um, even though... I mean, the the key part of it was New Super Mario Brothers two, which was shit. Um, so that aside, they still had like Luigi's Mansion coming. Um, they had uh, yeah Castlevania, um, Paper Mario Sticker Star, which we didn't know was going to be a bit ropey at that point. So yeah, that that definitely seemed better. But they almost seemed embarrassed by it because they didn't want to like muddy the three DS, the 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 Wii U waters. Mm. Um, but wrong messaging, I think. Like 3DS would be a way more loyal companion for the next two years than the Wii U. Yeah, I gotta say, like the Wii U, just from the outside looking in, just uh, it did just seem like uh, dead from the start. I didn't understand why they tripled down on these existing console games that, like, uh, you know, ran worse on the Wii U, and they were like, "Oh yeah, but it's got some gamepad features included." And I, ju- I just didn't get it. I didn't get why Mass Effect Three was on there. I didn't get, yeah. you know, why they made a big deal about Tekken being on there, Tekken Tag Tournament. It, it, and, I mean, uh, yeah. some. Of- some of it feels like Tekken feels like, you know, Nintendo has good relationships with other Japanese publishers and they go on to work very closely with Nanko Bandai on Smash Brothers and cut, you know, that feels more like there's stuff going on there between the companies. Oh, yeah, yeah. Pokemon um, Snap as well. That's another. Uh, yeah. Namco but game. like, the, but the, yeah, you're right about like the, the Western, like, here's a load of ports of like old third pipe. That just feels like Nintendo's got a chip on its shoulder that we, that we wasn't capable of playing that stuff. Yeah. But you're like, well, the excitement's over now. Like, those games are done. They're played out. Like, people, the people who are interested in shiny games like that are interested in the next shiny game, not the one they've already played. That was, that was just such a huge, huge problem. And like I say, the, the Wii U implementation on them was just, you know, a lot of them put, they definitely put some effort. Like, there were Wii U modes, but none of them were, like, compelling in any way. Like, if you watch that Batman presentation where he's kind of like, you know, you get this gadget which you get to control by like steering the gamepad or whatever, and you're like, well, fine, but I did that perfectly fine with an analog stick when I played this originally on 360. Like, nothing is fundamentally changing here. You are just adding faff. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Just super muddled, super sad. I mean, there was this was also the E3. They had that weird pre E3 thing where Awata explained the Miiverse for what felt like 15 hours, um, <laughs> which was quite. A, I remember sitting in a. <laughs> an internet cafe across from our hotel with Tim Clark because that was the only place we could get it we couldn't get the hotel Wi-Fi to work so we had to go to this like really dingy internet cafe to watch uh, Awata explain why 
what felt like they were going to like try and take on Twitter, basically, right. with like Meverse, because the pitch wasn't just that it was going to be on console; it was going to be on like phone, mobile, Android, all this stuff as well. And the Meverse does end up being one of the most charming bits of that machine, but it's also like, you know, it, it, it's purely loved by Nintendo weirdos. You know, the idea that you know they thought they were inventing the fucking metaverse or something is is just very odd very confusing times yeah they did like five e3 conferences over three days (laughs) right i don't know what nintendo are up to they should have just done one good one yeah rather than five confusing shit ones yeah yeah. i did watch the footage of scribblenauts unlimited in this and i was like this is what you're going with as your big like ah and it's funny because um you even you alluded to it but even a year later uh, the lay of the land was so much better with Nintendo. Like, um, there were Wii U games I wanted to play in 2013. There were, like, 3DS games I wanted to play in 2013. And, like, I felt like they were getting they were getting the airtime they needed. But here it just felt like a clawing at something. And, like, the ticking clock in the background was knowing that the PS4 and the Xbox One were going to be along at some point very soon. And, like, yeah. having parity with current gen wasn't going to have any value whatsoever. And, like, Mm. they didn't seem to get that, which is just where I think a lot of the hardcore sniffiness towards Nintendo comes from around this era. Um, Mm. But they would, um, obviously... um, You could could take a more positive outlook on this conference, Matthew, and suggest that, like, um, (laughs) what will one day be some incredibly profitable uh, Nintendo Switch games were revealed here. Um, (laughs) Like Pikmin 3 and New Super Mario Bros. um, uh, U and stuff. Like, uh, all that stuff would go on to be very profitable on Switch, just uh, not for another eight years, you know? Um, Yeah, yeah. I I just think, like, you know, if you'd been... if If they had done a stage presentation, like, the year they showed off you know, New Super Mario 3D World and Donkey Kong Tropical Freeze and, like, Bayonetta and, like, announced New Zelda. Like, that room would have exploded. Yeah, like, that yeah. would have been, like, one of the all-time great Nintendo conferences. Um, but instead, like, they just kind of put a, you know, take it out back and put a bullet in it because of this one. Right. Poor old Iguchi, man. The, the producer of Nintendo Land who basically has to, like, host the last 10 minutes of this. Because it must feel like you were, the, like, the final nail in the coffin. Right. Like, literally, you were the last thing that ever happened on stage at a Nintendo conference. <laughs> well, um, we'll take a break there then, Matthew, and we'll come back with our top 10s, yeah? Let's do it. Welcome back to the podcast. So let's get into the top 10. Matthew can go first. I always like to hear about what he's been playing at this time. And I think our list is going to be very different this time. So kick us off, Matthew. What's number 10? Um, I'm going to start off with a total heart pick, a total trash pick. I'm going to start off with Resident Evil 6. Yes! Oh, I love to see it. I didn't go for it in the end, I must confess. But um, yeah, go ahead, Matthew. Explain why the most bloated, um, action-heavy Resident Evil has made your list of the top 10 games this year. You see, you say bloated, I say wildly, wildly overambitious. Um, it This is like the biggest of swings, and so little of it lands that it really shouldn't be on a list like this. But I just 
I kind of admire Capcom going for it. I mean, the 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 basic gist of Resident Evil uh, Six is that they made four single player campaigns at once, and I wouldn't even say they're like four particularly like curtailed or budget campaigns. Each one is pretty substantial and really really goes for it. Um, there is some crossover in the stories to kind of location wise to give them some reuse, but. It's, you know, it feels like a pretty, uh, like, rammed 20 or so hours of campaign to me. And I, I kind of, I almost love the kind of audacity of and scale of it, of them throwing what I think is the biggest team Capcom has ever thrown at a game. I think it was, like, the big story at the time. It was, like, 600 people or something made this game. It reminded me of uh, the um, Assassin's Creed 2 press releases that were like, we've got 500 people worldwide working on this. Kind of, like, yeah. selling you on the scale of the production to get you excited, you know. Yeah, and now people are like, that's cursed. You know, now that now that sounds like production line, like a factory farm or something, and no one wants that. Right. Um, but back then, yeah, this was big and like big, sexy numbers. Um, I think Resident Evil 6 is kind of what happens if you feed every Resident Evil into a kind of sort of a very advanced computer and it tries to like generate a script you know you get that meme online where the guy says oh i wrote every seinfeld script and then the computer wrote it and then he's written like quite an unfunny parody of seinfeld yeah it's like that but for resident evil and not trying to be funny which is why it's successful um like each of the strands sort of feels like another resident evil there's one with uh two people trying to escape a giant meat monster called the Ustanak, which is um also mentioned in our boss excel episode for our patreon listeners mm-hmm. um and that's kind of like like a pure nemesis rift and then there's like leon's campaign feels a bit more resi 2 resi 4 in that you are in slightly more gothic locations you know there is even a siege in a gun shop at one point like it 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 feels like there's a lot of deliberate nods chris's campaign i'd say slightly harder to play so i'd say that's the more out and out action campaign that's like Um, that's like resi 5 a little bit kind of like you know the spirit of that more you know yeah, I mean, well, the whole thing is, like, the next step on from Resi 5. Like, if, yeah. if the game is getting more action-heavy with each iteration, like, whatever the individual flavours of the campaigns in this, I'd say they're all united in being kind of straight-up action. Like, none of them, I would say, are survival campaigns, per se. Like, things like inventory management and all that goes out the window. Like, you, you're never really worrying about bullets here. Like, it's it loses any of the sophisticated kind of risk reward stuff that um the Kami was so good at but if you are into the wild excess of resident evil if you're into like the melodrama if you're into like absurd boss fights if you're into monsters that die like 20 times and keep coming back forever wilder fights if you're in for really stupid quick time events like this game has all that it's absolutely rammed with it like a lot of people think it's just got like no taste to it because it's just all this stuff that's crammed in i think that the wild excess of it really wins you over it really won me over anyway um you know i love their art design i think it's a beautiful game i think there are enough weird and wonderful like design and art touches that this game is packed with stuff I, I like to see. And yeah, particularly at the boss fights, I think I think there's some really like a beautiful, grand um, enemy design in this game. And there's just so much of it because there's all of that um, campaign. It's quite funny. I was reading Simon Parkin's Eurogamer review and it was slightly sniffy about like 
if you're into just like the excess and more, you know, like I'm sure you'll think this is better. But, you know, if you're into if you've kind of got taste <laughs> like me, <laughs> you will not. And I was like, yeah, it's kind of me, I guess. <laughs> uh, I like that. I like that wildness of it. Um, I just, you know me, I love a game that really, really goes hard. There were quite a few this year. I think there's a, there's a few other games that kind of compete for the slot of like mad excess so this is also the year of Asura's Wrath I think yeah yeah that's right um which didn't didn't make my list but again it's uh, you know I love it when just Japan studios just throw like triple a budgets at just truly mind-melting scale and weirdness I, I think it's a really lovely trait I don't think they should be embarrassed to do this I mean, they kind of are in that obviously like Resident Evil gets like a proper reboot after this becomes seven, which is the exact opposite of this game, I would say. And worse. Um, it's a worse game than this, I think, seven. That's my take. It's like that's Oh, the... whoa, that is a hot take. I don't like Resi Seven. I think like it had like it had like two enemy types at most. And you just after that house and the kind of initial tension of it, it just turns into Resi action like stealthily and you don't even think about it and no one really pointed it out at the end. You're running for a helicopter while shooting, lo- shooting loads of goo monsters. How is that better than what Resi 6 does? That, you know what I mean? Well, that, yeah, and, and you are right. Like, when that game becomes an action game, it isn't as good an action game as Resident Evil 6. No. Like, is a much flashier, a lot more fun, grand scale. Um, yeah. I just think, I think there is a version of Resident Evil 6, which is a masterpiece if it was just... The fact that it's got all the characters, I think if they'd actually done, like, like lent more into like what made those characters games a bit more specific if they'd actually if the law hadn't kind of just completely gone off the rails and got very kind of confusing like i still like all the umbrella stuff like this this idea of this like grand culmination of of all the melodramatic bullshit in resident evil like i think would be an absolutely amazing game this isn't quite that but it's kind of moving towards that and yeah i i dig it yeah, so I think that this game is really underrated as an action experience. It's got I think I said this on our Resi podcast that we did where we ranked them. And I think that this game's big problem is that it didn't ever explain to you how most of its action mechanics work. So right. <laughs> I remember a post uh, that um on like NeoGaf that uh, former one up uh, person Mark McDonald shared saying that oh yeah, this is like the actual list of all the different action moves you can do in Resi and uh, Resi 6 and explain like um, that thing where you do like the quick shot where it like instantly like turns around and fires at someone who's nearby if you hit like tap two triggers at once. Yeah. How like you can dive backwards, dive forwards and then like roll around on the floor and all that stuff to dodge enemies which gave you like a massive kind of range in terms of movement um, mm. of how to use things. How that kind of stamina bar worked in relation to your melee attacks. Like, it's a really, like, deep game in that respect. Yeah. Um, underrated for how deep it is of that stuff. I think this game is too long. It is too flabby. I think if those campaigns were all, like, five hours on the dot and you cut back some of the, the chaff, like the Chris campaign in particular, has a bit too, it's a bit too repetitive in that Eastern European city fighting those big yeah, monsters. Yeah. It's a bit too boring. If, if it just had more of an editor's, like, approach to it, I think you could wrangle like a maybe an eight out of ten out of it, a nine out of ten, something like that. But as it stands, just yeah, the excess I think is is it's just a bit too bloated. But mm. yeah, I, I think like I think was just like roundly dismissed, and I don't totally buy into the narrative that Resi has gone back to basics and like it's and it's yeah. better for it. I don't totally buy into that because I think this is like quite a good little era of Resi personally. But mm. um, yeah, good pick, Matthew. Um, it was like it was in a four-way tie for my number ten. 
But um, do you okay. have anything more to add on it? Do you like the Ada campaign as well? The kind of post. Yeah, um, it's, got, it's got like a weird sort of stealthy kind of puzzle element to it. It's certainly very different, and the fact you know, like narratively, it ties a lot of stuff together and kind of comes in at the end to kind of sort of tie a bow on it. Um, yeah, yeah, I, it, and it is like if if you play like the version they release on. Uh, the next gen sort of Xbox One, PS4, like where you can play it at 60 frames. Like this was like one of the best looking games of the previous generation, yeah. and it still looks amazing. Like at, at, you know, if you can play it with the the smoother frame rate, it's I really really recommend it because it's just there's just so much like art in the game. Like so many art assets because you go to so many different places and they really go all out on it. You can just drink it all in. It's a very if you're into that kind of craft, it's yeah, a real treat. Yeah, the Mercenaries uh, No Mercy mode is also really fun. Um, that's like a next-gen port-only um, mode. It's on the it's in the PC version too, where it's like they basically just take the processing power of the new consoles and PC and put like double the enemies on screen or something <laughs> like, like that. And so you have a lot more exploding enemies going around and it becomes a lot more arcadey of like mm. keep moving, try and take out five enemies by blowing this thing up and um, really intense and really fun as opposed to like the regular mercenaries um, mode in this, which is a little bit little bit mild, I would say, a little bit um, not as good as Resi 5's mercenaries Ooh. mode. So The mercenaries like her as logged on. <laughs> oh, I'm a big fan. I can't wait until Resi 4 VR gets uh, mercenaries this year um, as a free download. That's going to be fun, I'm sure spend many hours on that so um, we'll never leave VR. <laughs> you'll become a withered husk <laughs> matthew my number 10 <sighs> this is really hard four-way tie right between resi 6 the darkness 2 max Payne 3 <laughs> and what i've actually gone with which is sleeping dogs so ah interesting yep yeah. is that on your list sleeping dogs it isn't i knew it's on my long list for sure yeah, yeah so it was tough this because there is a lot of like, um, there's a lot of games vying for, there are a lot of 8 out of 10 games this year, and a lot of them were vying for this like second half of my list. Sleeping Dogs is better than all those games, I think. But, well, yeah, I think it probably is. Yeah, maybe not. Oh, I don't know, it's tough. Yeah. But um, in terms of like, I picked, I've picked the one game here out of those I didn't finish. Um, so I did play right. about 10 hours of it. Um, but I have since actually revisited it on um, my Xbox Series X, because one of the games that gets the frame rate boost. So... It's always on sale for like three quid, so you can pick it up and play it. Open world game uh, set in Hong Kong was previously a true crime, um, sort of like a new true crime game. Uh, But Activision, for whatever reason, ditched it so they could publish more Call of Duty and Rock Band. Sorry, Guitar Hero games, I guess. And so uh, this went to Square Enix. They changed the name to Sleeping Dogs. Um, (laughs) I don't know why they picked that name, uh, really. But um, basically adds up to an open world game where you play as like an undercover cop. And um, the combat is very much like a take on the Arkham Asylum slash City, sort of like um, contextual melee stuff, counter-attacking, lots of nice slamming dudes' heads into things, that sort of combat style. Mm. Um, Has some of the best rendered food I've ever seen um, in a game. (laughs) Makes you very hungry playing this, I would say, going to the markets and stuff. Um, A really nice kind of like GTA-style open world game at a time where people kind of stopped making those, where even like even Saints Row... Um, but its next iteration would go like more superhero-y and um, and less kind of like mm. familiarly real worldish. And um, I think it kind of always undersold a little bit, but has got a bit of a cult reputation now. And it's like I think I think I thought it was rock solid. Um, and if they got mm. they got a chance to make another one, it could have been really up there as an open world game. Rockstar mm. could use the competition. People should make more of these types of open world games. I think. Um, so yeah, that's um, yeah, Sleeping Dogs. Just like 
a re real kind of solid, like pretty pretty decent storytelling for what it was. But I was more into just like the way the setting was brought to life, really. Like, um, mm. I've no idea how close it is to the real thing, but superficially, it looks like Hong Kong to me, and like um, just and felt pretty detailed. Um, mm. And driving was quite nice, just pretty solid open world game. Matthew, any thoughts? Yeah, I think you're right about the open world thing. It's almost like people stop making them, I guess, because of the price of making them. Just as everyone gets good at like all the basics of them like you know this is a game where everything feels much nicer like it's an open world game like gta but like the combat has the kind of like smooth feel of a you know a close-up combat game like batman you know it's mm. it, you know often with open world games it feels like what you you get scale but you maybe sacrifice the specifics particularly like mechanically you know like gta was never a particularly good shooter for a long time yeah and this is the generation when everyone gets better at all the individual parts like the driving models get better or the combat gets better or the mission design gets better and but then it, it coincides with a period where it now costs you know you basically have to be one of the biggest games on the planet to, to pull one of these things off or you're basically dead in the water um so this feels yeah it's kind of sad that we we don't get these kind of like second tier under Rockstar open world games anymore. Yeah, I mean, like the the only other one really is Watchdog. That yeah. the, all I want is the straight up like action, driving around, nicking cars, like enjoying the city environment stuff. Like I don't care about hacking some traffic lights when I'm going past. Do you know what I mean? Like it's yeah, yeah. This is like yeah, just just up there really. Um, this developer no longer exists. United Front Games, and what a bummer. Like I feel like. They made this and Mod Nation Races a perfectly like um, decent um, sort of karting uh, game with like shareable content. We could make tracks really easily and stuff. Um, really rock solid, and they just kind of went away. I felt like they were maybe three or four years away from being acquired by Microsoft if they still existed. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Right. Um, but yeah, now they're kind of no more. But what a shame because it did seem like they had the stuff, you know, um, to mm. make these games. So yeah, yeah, I think I agree with you about the specifics thing. Like even at this point, Rockstar, you know, we were pre GTA Five. GTA 4 was not a great shooter, it was a good shooter. Mm. And so, yeah, the fact that like this game was kind of doing it all was um, was really impressive. And an open world setting that Rockstar would never have done itself. So, yeah, what can you do? Um, but hey, yeah, a really good um, sort of like standalone game. And yeah, like I say, next gen, go hoover up that version, get a nice new Xbox, and um, it looks super shiny. So, Sleeping Dogs, Matthew, just about wrestles its way onto the list. It may have been higher if I'd have finished it, but because I didn't, I feel like this was, this was as high as it could go, you know? Um, um should we talk briefly about max Payne 3 uh yeah okay sure um thoughts well i'm uh, i i kind of hate max Payne 3 right like it's it's not for me at all i think it took something i really loved and absolutely ruined it like i think it's completely charmless it has none of the character it's completely overwrought i think it sucks i didn't like it as a shooter either uh it didn't come near my list but i was interested as it was competing for your list uh what your max Payne 3 take was right so I would say that what the one like big benefit that um, Max Payne 3 gets as like a, a linear game in the age of Rockstar just making open world games is that okay. it is the most lavish fucking game in terms of like environmental design and stuff. Like hotel bars you go through where all the glasses are individually rendered of like the different sort of drinks and stuff and like right, um, right. a football stadium that looks the part and like favelas, which is a big part of the kind of Brazilian setting they went for. Just like it just looked so the production values were just so, so high. And like while I wasn't as into the tone of the Tony Scott-esque kind of like um, stuff that they do here. Um, I really loved the um, the music by Health. The soundtrack by Health was like really different um, to how right. uh, this kind of stuff was done. 
I thought the shooting was frustrating, but I didn't mind it too much. I quite like that they combined um, cover shooting and bullet time. The kind of story stuff didn't land for me as well as the previous Max Payne's did. I think the series needed to evolve anyway. I don't think you could have kept doing film noir pastiches, and the the mm. second one did a lot of the kind of took a lot of it to its um, conclusion thematically in terms of like mm. how how like Mona Sachs dies at the end of the second game and stuff. Like I don't think there was loads more to say on that. It does have a brief kind of New York flashback bit that's quite nicely done. Um, yeah. But um, I, I kind of, I kind of get it. I, I sort of, I think some bits of this game really stick out. The organ farm that you come across in this game, really bleak. It's quite a bold swig at doing something different with Max Payne. I quite liked it. Mm. So I, think it was just, yeah. I just found, I found it too. It was almost trying to be too classy for what the idea is. Like this idea can be pulpy and fun. Yeah. Um, like they built those environments, but I didn't really feel that like the combat ever got to like a ludicrous place where like everything was exploding. Like, often I'd have a gun... Like, the gunfights felt like you had to play relatively conservatively. Like, it, it didn't... You know, unless you played on very easy difficulty, it was pretty tough and not really designed for, for like, mad shit to kind of kick off. Yeah. I know, it's funny, it's not a very well-loved game, I would say. Um, yeah. Generally. And it, it, I think, like, tonally... It is a bit too stiff and 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 not very fun. Whereas like Max Payne Two, it's easy to forget had a whole level set inside like a fictional theme park based on one of the TV shows inside the game universe, right. and that's a very remedy <laughs> thing to do. But this game is like almost lives in a different universe. It's almost like mm. it's almost like Max Payne is like a fictional character in his own universe in those first two games. But here, Max Payne's a real guy. Oh, I like that. Who has to, like, hold down a security job. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's like... Max yeah. Payne 1 and 2 might be a TV show in Max Payne 3. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it was also strange how little the game kind of referenced Max Payne 2. Like, um, Mona very briefly is mentioned. But, like, that that the suggestion of the ending of Max Payne 2 is that that event is kind of the thing that has broken him permanently. And, like, there's no hope for him. That's kind of like the the thing you take away from that but mm. instead it's kind of it acts more like oh my wife and kids were killed in max Payne one and that's the whole thing it doesn't do any of the kind of like big dream sequency stuff that remedy did in those games it is mm. very straightforward like man in a hawaiian shirt shooting a, <laughs> shooting a load of like 20 somethings in a brazilian favela uh, maybe that <laughs> maybe the optics of that have dated a little bit i don't know um <laughs> But I, yeah, I don't know. I think there's something in like, what if Rockstar threw all the money it makes on, you know, it, it does, it spends on open world games, that one linear environment, and you really feel how lavish it is. Um, mm. So that's, is that a half-hearted defense, Matthew? I don't know. But yeah, I, I, no, I think, I think, I think so. I, I definitely get that, and I would happily take another, like, like you say, linear high production thing from them. I just, I don't know, maybe because I had more of a personal connection with. Max Payne one and two in terms of quite sort of games that came along at a sort of formative time and was feeling quite protective about it. It's the idea that Rockstar almost I got the feeling they thought they were classier than the license, in which case make something else, you know? Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, like it's sort of like because you get this, you kind of post Ali Noir as well, which has got like real actors in it and stuff and. GTA 4 had quite a serious, thematically serious story. This is kind of like the era where I, I noticed, I noted like um, journalists maybe calling on Rockstar games a little bit um, because the, all of those games in a row are quite serious with uh, Red Dead Redemption as well. Like they are bigger into the serious storytelling at this point. Um, mm. And then GTA 5 kind of dials it back a little bit. But yeah, uh, I think that's probably fair. But um, yeah, that's kind of like, that's kind of where I'm at with it, Matthew. I don't okay. think it's like a masterpiece. I also think that it's fair to say at this point in the in this console generation a third person shooter with no other element to speak of was always going to be a tougher sell we'd seen so many of them do you know what i mean (laughs) 
Yeah. Okay, that's enough about that then. So what's your number nine? My number nine is Nintendo Land. Yep. It's the only Wii U game on my list. Wii U has the worst launch lineup of any Nintendo console, I think. By quite, uh, not by quite some distance. 3DS's launch lineup isn't particularly strong either, I would say. But Nintendo Land, you know, I think it's the one game which, in hindsight, is a standout, could only happen on Wii U kind of game. Often what happens with weird Nintendo design quirks like the Wii remote or the gamepad is actually I think it takes like the whole console's lifespan to really understand where that tech can go or might go and so you know at the start you review things based on like it's like the promise of the machine and this may sound like I'm about to segue into a defense of red steel like we didn't know what a good or bad first person shooter on Wii could feel like at launch is you know is is a line of defense I've taken with that, and by the end of it, you're like, well, actually, Red Steel was like a pretty good shake at what the Wii U, what the Wii was capable of. I think the same with Nintendo Land. Like, it wasn't there came a generation of things which used the Wii U in all these amazing ways. So people who are kind of a bit underwhelmed by Nintendo Land, I think actually, I would say, well, it's this is kind of what the Wii U would ever be. It's kind of here, like it or hate it. That's that's what we're dealing with. <laughs> hopefully that made sense (laughs) no i think so yeah like it's um it shows that like as a kind of gimmick to sell the console it's not nearly as like it doesn't have the the mileage that the um the the wiimote did you know i think some people marked it down because they expected something more was coming and actually it never did so actually in hindsight this this was this was a pretty good indicator of what the wii was about i'm really putting it in for the competitive games there are 12 games in there i think only three of them are competitive that's mario chase luigi's ghost mansion never understood why they added ghosts to that because luigi's mansion is a ghost mansion (laughs) and animal crossing sweet chase these were the three games which basically pit players with Wii remotes playing on a TV against a player on the gamepad who had like an extra layer of information the other people didn't have you know the famous one in Mario Chase is uh, the person who is trying to escape the other players as Mario can see where they all are and can use that command of a labyrinth to kind of pull off some pretty audacious um, shenanigans to get by them in Luigi's Mansion the people on TV can't see the ghost that you're playing as on the gamepad you're trying to sneak up on them and spook them and get them and uh, in the sweet chase it's people trying to collect sweets while you control two kind of cops in Animal Crossing you're trying to get the sweets that's a bit of a weird setup Um, I think (laughs) Animal Crossing needs like a huge police presence but whatever (laughs) Kind of all variations on a theme, but it it really sold. This is one of the few things a second screen can do, is give people another perspective and create some quite exciting drama on the TV. Um, The best Wii U games did do this. like They found interesting interplay between the two screens. Uh, This was one of the earliest ones that did it, did it best um, in many ways. It's, as a pack-in game... Like you have to factor in as that as well. A lot of people bought the, the you know the Wii with the slightly bigger hard drive and came with this. It's a much more substantial kind of well-rounded package uh, than Wii Sports. Like there's just a lot more sort of shape to it. I think it's more appealing as an all-round thing. I don't think the remaining nine games are like absolutely stellar. I don't think any of them are honking. They're more about selling the Wii U as a its various inputs. So it's kind of like gyroscopes or touchscreen, and that's fine, but we felt like we'd sort of seen that in previous forms. It's the games with the second screen that really stand out in this one. Yeah, so I have only played this once. It was at uh, Matt Elliott's house about three or four years ago, 
Um, <laughs> Matt Elliott, who used to work at Future. Uh, and I thought, what a tragedy that there are so many people who own a Switch who will never, ever see um, how good this uh, this Ghost game is and how good this Mario Chase game is. Like those, mm. I remember those two more than the sweet one, really, Matthew? It's the sweet one's the weaker of the three, for yeah. sure. Yeah, like, so I, but I just thought the notion of that, like, information control as like a, a kind of like a premise for like a party game was just so well done mm. just really really nice yeah like it, it is something that only really works for something so specific like the like the wii u it's kind of a tragedy in a sense um mm. but i thought like there's um i believe that there's like uh when you're playing with the other when you're playing with a wiimote with the other ones does the controller vibrate when the ghost is near or something like that is yeah, that it yeah does. when there's yeah there's a ghost near there's also sort of like uh extra effects like there'll be lightning outside the house and it will light up the corridors and reveal a ghost if you're standing there so they have balanced it quite carefully that there's lots of like weird little quirks to help either side yeah it's like it weirdly reminds me of like the dynamic of some modern board games like that particular mini game where like in terms of like the one um three or four mm. players element of it um yeah just really really good so yeah I, I i can see why this made your list i'm glad you went low with it though i don't think it needs to be any higher than this just because like you say no. if, if the other games aren't memorable they probably shouldn't be any higher than this you know yeah and there were some like duff ones there was one which was like based on that ninja takamaru quite obscure famicom game with um flicking ninja stars at the screen which was which was pretty underwhelming there was there's quite a fun one where you're tilting the gamepad to sort of steer donkey kong on a little cart through this kind of deadly labyrinth but there, a lot of the, a lot of them could be kind of done and sort of sorted in half an hour and then you didn't really have to worry about them again but yeah we, we played these multiplayer ones in the office loads they're just very easy pick up and play as well like if you can move around a maze you can play this game yeah for sure um yeah good stuff matthew so um, any more thoughts? Should we move on to my number nine? Yeah, let's do it. All right, sure. My number nine is the game Catherine um, by Atlas. Oh, right. Um, so this game released in 2011 in uh, the US, but only reached Europe in 2012. Bold putting this on the list, isn't it? Because I have to talk about it now without sounding like a perv pervert. Game. <laughs> yeah. um, All right. Pervert, is it? Oh, <laughs> Remember, this is not a horny podcast. Um, well, why are you dragging it into a horny podcast territory? If you can talk about this very horny game in a non-horny way, I'll be impressed. This game's kind of about shame, I think. Uh, well, you've done it. <laughs> well, round of applause, the podcast is over. <laughs> this is like a puzzle game combined with a visual novel or like the more um, sort of like life simmy elements of Persona, but mm. in a bit of a looser way. It's... Part game where you're hanging around in this this bar called the Stray Sheep with your with your male friends. Um, you play this guy Vincent, who's this quite anxious dude who's um, nervous about being in a full time relationship with um, uh, Catherine, his longtime girlfriend, and the commitment that's coming up as a man who's like I think nearing thirty or is thirty, something like that. And um, he wakes up one day having slept with another woman called Catherine who is um uh younger uh, and like um doesn't under- remember what happened and from there you're kind of like basically in different ways making choices on whether you stick with commitment or go further down the route of cheating that's kind of like what this game is about it manifests though in the form of like decisions you make between this um puzzle <laughs> this entire puzzle element where you're ascending these stairs um, that are collapsing behind you um, and being chased by various horrors that are manifestations of um, Vincent's <laughs> fear of commitment. Preposterous, really. 
and like the puzzle element doesn't sit perfectly alongside the more kind of the relationship elements and indeed if that if those bits weren't in the game this part this as a puzzle game this would only be okay i think but Mm. the way that it kind of like blends all of it together made i i I was just so ready for something like this at the time like uh, just something that asked some different questions about game storytelling like would any game now have like are games too chase now to have a protagonist who cheats on their partner i think they are a little bit Uh, the idea of a boxed game from a major publisher exploring this kind of subject matter probably wouldn't happen but like cheating is a thing that people do and thinking about cheating is a thing that people do and this game tapped into that at a time where like i don't know i suppose i i, I found some parallels in myself and vincent in terms of like i didn't cheat or anything but i was like oh, i was always thinking about it <laughs> <laughs> i was in like a, a steady relationship and i thought do i want to be in this forever the answer was no right. i didn't but it was like i don't know it was it was it asked enough it, interesting questions that i was thinking about in my head and explored them in ways that i found genuinely compelling sorry matthew go on i think there's a specificity to it which you probably you would expect now more in like the indie space and you see a lot of games that celebrate like people's specific experiences and like indie developers who put more of their lived in experiences and the stuff that tends to get celebrated and rightly so is kind of like more diverse voices you know whether that's sort of like you know race race questions sexuality questions or just like nationality of like you know what it's like to grow up in this place or that place and 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 that stuff's sort of very very sort of celebrated but i guess the the pitch of this is it's not like miles away from that in that it's another quite in-depth investigation of the topic it's just like what it's an investigation of the perspective is you know a cheating white dude which is maybe why it's less celebrated i can sort of understand that but i don't think i think in terms of its actual like sort of toolkit and how it does it i don't think it is miles away from a lot of indie fare which is celebrated for kind of going a bit deeper into like real life ideas yeah i think that's fair i think like the the big caveat i put on this is like like you say you're playing this kind of trash white guy and like it is very male gazy male perspective like um but you that, know but that yeah that is a perspective i'm not like i'm not defending it but that is a perspective that's a perfectly valid perspective to investigate and it's not that this game is celebrating, you know, it's, it realises that it's kind of tragic, you know, yeah. and it's problematic. And I think that's what makes it, what makes it interesting and, and like a worthwhile topic. Yeah, the game doesn't reward you for cheating. Um, it eventually punishes you if you, you know, if that's the path you go down, whereas it kind of rewards you for being faithful and like but the the fact that they even give you the choice and degrees mm. of consequence from that choice i don't know there's like i guess i was really ready to see that in a game and like the fact is in other media you know you you will watch tv shows and watch films where the protagonists cheat and like people don't take exception to the content based on that usually whereas mm. i think if you play i think maybe people do a bit more in games for whatever reason where like the the actual tone of it is like maybe people react more sensitively the, to it than they maybe would with other media for whatever reason. Maybe it's because interactive or something like that. But I think that means that like maybe a game like Catherine just perhaps like I don't know. It's it is like a it does have like a cult audience. It got like a new version mm. a few years ago on on Switch and stuff. Like people do like it. I suppose what I'm saying is you don't want to conflate the idea that this character is cheating 
with the fact that the developers like think it's okay to cheat and it's promoting cheating by letting you play as a character who can cheat when right, right. the intent is maybe a bit more sophisticated than that. Yeah, so it's a mm. tough one to talk about for sure. Like, and I've, yeah. I've I've set myself up for failure by even going. For no, it. I think no, I think I think you made a very valid case for it. You know, and a case for like you know, a, you want a you want a suite of games. You want the, you know, it's a grown up perspective. It's sort of you know, it may look a bit kind of trashy or silly from the outside, but it, it you know, it has it's dealing with grown up stuff and has some grown up ideas. Um, it's in the same way that like I think people you know when when you sort of talk about like erotic thrillers in films or like how you miss the genre and people are a bit like huh, 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 you know dirty dirty and you're like well no it's 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 part of like a mixed cinematic diet you know yeah. you want films about adults doing adult stuff occasionally like I, I kind of refuse to feel embarrassed about it like if you think it's salacious then you know that's on you. <laughs> Yeah, a game that reflects that, why it happens, and and how you know the the kind of the thought process that leads to it. Just interrogating that in any way just was really interesting to me, and re- remains enduringly interesting, even with like mm. the more dated elements. There's some dated elements around a trans character that does not stand up the test of time, I would say, um, and completely valid criticism of that. And like I say, it is kind of it is male gazy, and your mileage on that may vary, but. I don't know, man. Catherine, I will never forget playing this game. This is super memorable. I like yeah, all the one kind of the kind. Yeah, for sure. Plus, you can play uh, Shin Megami Tensei uh, soundtracks on the um, on the jukebox in the bar. So, uh, yeah, that's another point in its favour. So, <laughs> whew, navigated that one, Matthew. Don't think I got cancelled there. Let's see uh, what happens in the aftermath. But uh, <laughs> what's your number eight? Uh, this definitely won't get. Well, it might get me cancelled for just bad, bad taste or weird <laughs> taste or being de- deliberately uh, uh, Nintendo focused. It's an Arkham um, City Armored Edition, Matthew. <laughs> it is. No, it's not. <laughs> it's um, it's the sequel to my Wii Mini favorite Hydro Venture. <laughs> wow! Yes, you love to see fluidity it. spin cycle. Hydro Adventure was the kind of Metroid-y platformer where you played as a big puddle of water. This is the 3DS sequel, which kind of gets rid of the Metroid elements, makes it a lot more self-contained levels, but I think focuses the whole idea. It's a puzzle game built around uh, the different physical states of water. You control a big puddle of water that you uh, pour around levels by tilting the 3DS. You could turn into a cloud that floats around and has um, specific abilities tied to that uh, st- state, and you can harden into a block of ice, uh, which can sort of slide down ramps and smash through barriers and things. What I like about this is um, a it's it's just a really clean evolution of like an idea that was pretty great on Wii, um, great enough to make it onto my Wii Mini anyway, um, much to everyone else's amusement. And like I just think it like fully explores its ideas better. I think it's technically stronger, like the art's cleaner. It feels like the scale of the adventure is a much better fit uh, for 3DS. Has some absolutely gorgeous water physics, which really sells you on the sort of satisfaction of dealing with these materials. And like that for me is the main thing with this game is that as well as just being a good puzzle game in its own right, where the different states you know, have playful puzzle solutions. They're just very nice in their own right. Like, controlling water it has a very satisfying feel of watching it, like, s- sneak through cracks and things, where turning into a big, thumpy ice block and smashing through things has got, like, real weight and heft to it. It's a very Nintendo-feeling game. It isn't a first-party game. It's made by Curve, um, a London-based studio, but it was made with Nintendo. Nintendo published it, and... Um, 
I think there's just a lot of not Nintendo hand-holding, that's a bit condescending to curve, but there's clearly some like Nintendo through line in terms of um, like how the puzzles evolve, how you introduce people to mechanics. It's got a very, very nice sort of power curve to it. It feels great, feels very tactile, as well as just being a really smart puzzler. Um, the only thing which is slightly weird about this one is it doesn't have any 3DS visuals for one because you're tilting. It's all gyroscopically controlled. And it also has levels which are like 360 degree. So you have to like tilt the 3DS all the way upside down, which some people are a little down on because like as you're moving the DS, you might close the lid or press buttons or something. I didn't have that problem. I did note in my review that to be careful if you played with headphones because you might garrot yourself. Um, I stand by that. <laughs> Great take, great take that. Thank, thank you. Um, I described the ice block smashing through walls. I reread my review and I described it as uh, an incredible Hulk flavored ice lolly, which um, I was pleased with then and made me made me smile now. Yeah, just a really lovely bite sized weird puzzler. Definitely something to get before 3DS eShop closes. Kind of came out of nowhere. Small, perfectly formed uh, delight. Yeah, I mean, fluidity always deserved better than being battered by Metroid Prime Trilogy in one of our like um, draft culture wars. <laughs> like It always deserved better than that, Matthew. I mean, Clash of the Titans. It was never made to be compared to such a thing. Like it, no. was just, it was just an unfortunate byproduct of the draft. It was an acclaimed I, game. I turned it into a punchline. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, that's on you, my friend. Yeah. I shouldn't have sent it out. Like that was un- I shouldn't have sent it out to fight. Yeah. I should have sent, yeah, I know, that was 100% on me, and I feel bad about that. Uh, yeah, because, like, you know, Curve made a cool little uh, puzzly game that, you know, was decent on a, a platform that probably needed more games like this to, to sort of thrive as a digital game service. But, uh, yeah, uh, nice, nice to see it on your list, Matthew. Uh, I've never played it. Maybe I will go grab it before this store closes. But, um, yeah, yeah, cool. Uh, good individual take. People, This sort of thing people like to hear from you, I think, on these <laughs> yeah. episodes. Um, the nice 3DS kind of Wii type things. The puddle is called Eddie. Okay, very good. It's, it's quite good. Yeah. It's just why you I hate see. Thomas was alone, because it's like um, you felt like it was ripping on the sh- same shtick, where it's like... Oh, this this was far more sophisticated game than Thomas was alone. <laughs> just because just it didn't have Danny Wallace going, Oh, it's a puddle. <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> Okay, good. Um, I'm afraid I've got nothing more to add on this one because I've just never uh, played it. Right, that's fine. Let's 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 move on to your number eight. <laughs> okay, my second Japanese game in a row that's got a young blonde woman on it on the front cover. Lollipop Chainsaw is my number eight, Matthew. Big heart pick here. This is like probably the most okay of the different um, grasshopper manufacturer 3D action games. Right. But in terms of tone, I fucking love this game. So the real kind of like magic at the heart of this is it's a collaboration between Grasshopper, Suda51's outfit, and James Gunn, the filmmaker who had gone to uh, make Guardians of the Galaxy. But this was pre that. He has like a trauma background, kind of trashy horror stuff. You know, he's a bit much on Twitter these days. I think we can all agree. But um, <laughs> I would I say that... he would have learned, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, so this game is like essentially... Um, uh, you play a cheerleader whose boyfriend is bitten by zombies in a kind of zombie attack on this high school, Romero High School, and she, with a chainsaw, chops off his head but keeps him alive in order to like stop him from becoming zombie infected, um, and carries him around on like a little belt on um, on her side, 
Um, he's still alive. He's wisecracking. He is constantly emasculated while she is going around like killing zombies with a chainsaw. And periodically, different um, James Gunn associated uh, kind of actors like Michael Rooker will turn up playing different uh, bosses and characters in the game. Um, and it's just really, really fun and funny. Some of my favorite writing ever in a game, Matthew, this one. Um, I, I really, really love michael rosenbaum's performance he's lex luther from smallville as as nick the boyfriend um i think the relationship in a game is very sweetly done because he is constantly emasculated but he is like quite quite a spaced out high school dude it's got some really nice touches like there are sequences where she will place his head on like a kind of like a, a sort of dummy body and he'll do this sort of zombie walk while she is sort of cheerleading for him on the side and it's this thing where it's like she really wants him to do well and prop him up, but he's like, I'm just a head now. I'm not, I'm like not a person. And that's just really fun. And then the kind of way it weaves in music is very similar to how Guardians of the Galaxy uses music as well. Um, you've even got some tracks uh, from that that kind of um, pop up here. There's a whole sequence where you're mowing down zombies in a combine harvester to dead or alive spin me round. And the one-liners are just so, so good. I played it with my partner a few years ago, actually, because I was curious to know what she would make of it. She was like, okay, this game has way too many gratuitous shots of this um, blonde teenage girl like in a cheerleader outfit, but also it's very funny and sweet at the same time. Um, mm. So, yeah, maybe um, maybe a game that like people would argue should be honourable mentions rather than top ten, but these are heartless, damn it. And so I was a big fan of this game. Thoughts, this, Matthew? This feels... This feels- feels very you this feels like an intersection of interests like, michael rosenbaum do you like james gunn stuff i think you like james gunn stuff yeah kind of i'm up and down on it really um yeah i just think that like um merging that with the world of like a pseudo game kind of fits it quite nicely yeah. you know what i mean yeah do, do you think and you don't think this in the in the grander pseudo canon this like where does this sort of sit uh above killer is dead but below no more heroes that's where I think it sits. Okay. Do you think that's probably fair? How, 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 does it, how does it sit with Shadows of the Damned? I, so I've only played a very small part of it. I've never played it all the way through, for shame. Above Shadows of the Damned, because the kind of the tonal elements of these games are like, I would say about 50% of their appeal, as well as the games themselves. Would you agree with that? Um, for with, with yeah, games? That's, that's true. And I, I thought, I think at the time I kind of grouped it in with Shadows of the Damned just because it was like a character with a head sidekick, <laughs> where it was like a sort of talking skull in Shadow of the Damned. I thought, oh, it's that again. Yeah. And didn't really go for it in a big way, but it, I obviously didn't give it the time it needed. Yeah, I think like that's probably fair. It's probably about as good relative to its genre as Shadows of Damned is. Maybe Shadows of Damned is a slightly better shooter, actually. But it and, and I definitely think some more money was spent on Shadows of the Damned. But it's like the kind of puerile humour of that one really turned me off. Whereas yeah. the humour here is it's about a very dumb situation, but it's quite sophisticated in its own way. Um mm. the characters definitely feel like they've got their own sort of inner lives. And yeah, I just it just feels like quite improv-y. And just really goes for it, and I think that I think that, so. I would put it above Shadows of the Damned as well in the in, in my personal oh, take I, on the pseudo canon. I definitely, definitely have to 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 play this properly. Oh, like I say, I have, I have I have limited experience of it. Well, it feels right for a re-release to me. I don't know why I didn't get updated for the um, backwards compatibility stuff on Xbox. Like that would have been a great way to play it. Otherwise, this is just kind of trapped on old consoles, which is a shame. Like I say, it's just an okay um, sort of action game. Like, it, it reminds me of uh, No More Heroes in the way that it kind of uses, like, it has visually flashy, like, um, you know, uh, sort of like power attacks and ultimate attacks and stuff like that. Mm. Um, all that's in there. Very kind of like, uh, the UI is very kind of like um, 
a sort of uh, like a teenage girl sort of diary sort of like right. visual style to it it's rife it's rife with kind of references to you know um different genres like i say romero high school really obvious one but like it's um it definitely feels like it's standing on the shoulders of like uh sort of like tropey horror stuff in a way mm. that's quite quite um loving but yeah it's mostly like the jokes and the humor and the very specific dynamic that i just really love about this game um Ooh. married to some quite fun um chopping uh, zombies up with a chainsaw action matthew so delightful yeah there you go um no more horny entries now what's your number seven <laughs> yeah catherine and that yikes <laughs> uh, yeah. uh not good not good uh this is absolutely not horny uh number seven i've got fez oh yeah that is not horny uh, is this on your list? It's not on my list, no. I like Fez a lot. It feels like every year around this period, there was like one super clever puzzle game, which was a bit out there and had like a secret layer of like madness to it. Felt like it was like Braid, then Fez, then The Witness, I guess. I'm probably only thinking of those three games, to be fair. But I'd say they're all cut from a similar cloth in that they're kind of slightly far out so the mechanic in Fez is that it's a 2d perspective of a 3d world and you sort of spin it by 90 degree increments to discover like a new perspective on the land and so you're sort of swiveling this sort of um cuboid world i guess to kind of create new platforming routes and that in itself is like it's not a particularly complicated platformer but it's got this very nice retro style this absolutely incredible soundtrack by disaster piece I want to say what's interesting about Fez, though, in I'd say sort of similar to Braid, more so The Witness, is that there is this like other layer to it. There's this idea of like a world beyond the world you're seeing, not just in that you're swiveling to get a new perspective, but there is sort of secrets buried deep in this world. You know, breaks the fourth wall by using things like QR codes are involved with some puzzles. Uh, there's one where the solution is famously embedded in one of the achievement descriptions for this game. Mm. There is a secret language. There are several secret languages, in fact, uh, that you have to like learn how to pass. And how that happens is kind of extraordinarily clever. Like You have to sort of find the Rosetta Stone of the Fezverse, and it's done in this quite not chin scratchy but it's super smart way it's a, it's a very you know i i think some people would call it mega pretentious other people are like obviously so so up my street if you're into sort of yeah code cracking and layers upon layers there's just a huge amount going on in here which is quite hard to talk about without spoiling it massively and to this day like i think that is the kind of reason to play it is, is to sort of break into that second layer um, I will say I didn't get massively far into that layer myself because it is really really difficult but the few sort of nibbles I had at it made me feel very smart and good about myself which is why it's you know relatively high up my list compared to some of the other things yeah it just felt like a sort of definitive kind of indie text from this year there was a huge amount of talk about it because of uh, Phil Fish the developer was quite a loud character I guess I think people who are like very online have like mega beef with him and i can't really chart some of it back as a standalone piece of work i really like this <laughs> yeah like if you just completely like detach the baggage of the real life artist or however people feel about him from the game itself like it's a it's a shame there isn't there aren't more games from him you know um yeah. he's obviously features in that indie games documentary that they made as well and so and comes across as quite intense in that but I don't know. I just think, honestly, though, Matthew, this is like um, a pile of shame game for me. I never really got, I never really played Fez. Um, I own yeah, it, it, but yeah. 
missed it. Weirdly, I get the impression that he's more interested in that kind of deeper level of stuff that's going on. Like, the, you know, this was always sold as, oh, it's the kind of 2D game where you rotate it and it reveals other perspectives on it. And I don't think that's ever used in, like, amazingly interesting ways. You know, the actual world design and the actual platforming that comes from it, I think you could build, like, more of a mechanical ch- challenge using that mechanic, and he doesn't. You know, he's actually relatively sort of self-controlled with it. But where it is wild is this code and hidden messages and weirdness in this game. Like, once you sort of get on the game's wavelength, you discover that everything is the way it is for a very particular reason. Like, there's, there's like, an incredible artful precision in so much of this game that doesn't reveal itself unless you kind of dig into what makes it special, which, you know, is exactly the same as The Witness. You know, The Witness is kind of... is a little bit like, so what... Um, until you sort of discover the, the, the bigger picture stuff. Um, I'd say this has a sort of similar effect to that. I, mean, I was looking up online some of the like the wildest stuff in this game, and it is so obscure. Like, some of it people cracked just by, like, brute-forcing it, by just putting in, like, endless combinations of things. Like, some of the solutions, people still to this day don't really know like what the question was they have the answer but they never really worked out how they were meant to get there like it's that complicated that people i think this game still has secrets people don't understand like there's stuff where there's tiny graphical elements and from that they're like communicating to you in like morse code or they're giving you binary code you then have to turn into something on your pc to put back in the game there's there's a lot going on here and i won't not going to pretend i grasped like even five percent of it but I grasped enough to feel cool and like I was part of the cool thing Fez was doing. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I, I've got this wish listed on Switch. So when it drops at some point, Matthew, I'll, I'll hoover it up and give it a go because I always meant yeah, to play yeah, this. Yeah. Um, yeah, and like like you say as well, definitely like speaks to how the indie game movement is happening around this time. You just have so many games like this. This is like you know a vanguard game of that movement. Um, mm. An exciting time for sure. Uh, what did you play this on at the time, by the way? uh xbox live arcade i think right 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 because uh, well, i think i think was it a summer of arcade game i think it was originally yeah just on xbox yeah yeah it feels like that kind of era because there was the big documentary this year there was that indie game the the film or indie game the movie yeah which was like following phil fish and i think it followed the super meat boy team as well yeah that's right yeah um so the, i you know they were quite prolific they became the kind of poster children i guess for indie all indie games yeah um obviously now seems preposterous because it's such it's an entire industry unto itself but back then maybe made a bit more sense yeah for sure it was like um they were just there were there a few of them a few of them are around to like make a real impact um when they like uh when they took off and like i say i think like um, usage of steam creeping up massively around this time just means these games could become overnight hits in a way that just wasn't possible on consoles at the time so um mm. having said that this was on xbox that's a lie isn't it that's not that's not real analysis but yeah good stuff um <laughs> well i said yeah so <laughs> so my number seven yeah yeah do it. my number seven is spec ops the line on your list not on my list yeah so just like had to be on my list i uh, don't think it's like the best third person shooter ever that's fairly well uh, as well uh, a well kind of like held belief that this is not like a top of the line shooter um but this is a thought-provoking game uh, basically about american interventionism and ptsd and it's um also a great riff on heart of darkness slash apocalypse now 
you play this group of Delta Force like uh, dudes who goes into Dubai, which has been ravaged by sandstorms and has been basically taken over by this um, uh, Colonel Kurt style figure called Conrad. Very on the nose reference there, but you know it works very nicely. And you hear a lot of um, uh, like uh, his sort of like screed through these speakers read by um uh, bruce boxleitner from um babylon 5 and tron um, <laughs> but he's really really good in it uh and um you play your main character is played by nolan north and so you are basically going into this city to quote unquote liberate it um but along the way find yourself being drawn to more and more atrocities in order to um basically just like stay alive keep an edge and then without spoiling it because i think people should be able to play it um unspoiled it's well worth playing it does one of the all-time perspective flips of what's actually going on and then at the end you have to decide how to reckon with that and i think it's incredibly effective the use of dubai as a setting was um i think like just really really smart and unusual because it's kind of like the modern version of what like uh i don't know like a sort of over over inflated kind of like you know sort of like a, a just preposterous wealthy place looks like um so i quite like it as a take on that i've read some mm. like on wikipedia it says that the um uae banned the game but i couldn't find a primary news source on that and i don't think it's true i don't think this was considered particularly controversial um i think that might be a bit imaginary but in terms of how it explored the, those themes it generated way too many op-eds a suffocating amount of them to the yeah. point where it became just a bit i don't know it was a bit like a bit divorced from the game itself the the sort of um the kind of like cottage industry of people discussing it but the, i would say the game itself is successful in how it explores its themes casting nolan north allows him to subvert the kind of like action hero trope very kind of much a reference to his role as nathan drake who's always going around killing loads of dudes and the consequences of that are never examined of course because we all like to have fun when we play video games and not be miserable um which is completely fair if you ask me but as a kind of like a, a one-off game that explores that idea really really effective even if i think like one of its weaknesses is you don't have there are instances in the game where you are essentially pressured into making choices that you know are bad and then the game's like well look at that bad choice you made later on and i think that's the weakness of the game like yeah. yes i know that using white phosphorus is just a bad idea and the game's like <laughs> well you got to use this now to clear the area and it's like i know that we shouldn't be doing this but i have no control over this so yeah that's the one weakness of the game i think where it's like you know look at this terrible thing you did but i knew it was terrible at the time and i just felt like i had no other choice <laughs> yeah and that's a that, you can't use that as a gotcha you know yeah, yeah. it's not like i was like woohoo white phosphorus is rad yeah you know <laughs> <laughs> that is and it but it almost thinks that that's what you are thinking i mean it thinks very little of you <laughs> I, I i don't know if it thinks little of you i just think it, it i know i know that there's like a a line it needs to toe between getting the point of the story across and also having you interact with it as a player and it's tough to draw that line but um mm. as a bold like a bold game from a massive publisher it's a take two published game this is like got a pretty strong anti-war message to it and pretty like it's you know you have you don't have to read between the lines much to realize that it's quite anti-america as well um mm. so at least at least the um kind of american approach to interventionism um and the consequences of that which you know is like something we are li perpetually living with so thoughts matthew did you play this one at the time yeah i did um yeah i i, I must admit i've often struggled to kind of um balance the you know the brains it obviously has and the fact that it's it's like a fine cover shooter you know yeah 
Um, like I almost feel like its message gets more effective the more compelling it, it is as an action game. Because right. that's almost the twist is sort of, in, in, in a way, is like the the more it can kind of get you on board with it like the more effective it would be and it just doesn't like mechanically mechanically it's like it's fine like it's absolutely fine um i think there's an even more effective version of this game i guess is what i'm getting at um and it's sort of hobbled in certain ways i'm also not sure if like 2k really like and they obviously understood what the game was about but you know, in previews and the way they talked about this game felt like they were just trying to make you like buy this if you like Call of Duty. Yeah. Um, and which, and I don't think that was just like a PR person kind of cleverly setting you up for a rug pull. I think they genuinely was trying to, I think 2K were trying to sell it as a war game. Whether, is it, who made this? Jake? J- uh, Jaeger, yeah. Jaeger, yeah. Uh, whether you know Jaeger are obviously doing something more with it, but you almost get the feeling like people didn't really know. Like it wasn't sold as a clever game, which is almost like the surprise. It's like surprise. This has got like big brains going on in it. I guess they talked about Heart of Darkness a bit in like the early phases of it, but um, yeah, I, you know maybe I find it a bit hard to detach from that conversation. You know, hard to detach from like how it was marketed and sold as well. Um, it did have a multiplayer mode that was very poorly received as well, uh, and that yeah. that speaks to what you're saying, I think, about oh, yeah, the, you know, yeah. It's, it's like there's definitely like there's obviously smart stuff going on in there, but it's like at times it almost seems accidental, um, which makes it kind of a, a tricky one to like out and out celebrate. Cause I don't, say I wasn't that. I don't know if I agree with that. I don't think it's accidental. I don't think I think those choices are very deliberate. Like, what, which which parts of it do you think are accidental? Well, no, but like, but like the fact that you know it has this stance, but then it also has a multiplayer mode. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's, that's that's what I mean. Like, there's certain things that kind of seem to contradict each other. Where you're like, well, a team that is switched on and clued in enough to kind of take the story down this route wouldn't also make that decision. Yeah, yeah. Like that's that's what I'm more uh, accidental is wrong. I'd say there's definitely a tension there between maybe developer and publisher. I would I would think. Yeah, yeah, it spent a long time in development as well. I think it was revealed in 2009 and then came out 2012. Like, I remember it writing about it on X360 magazine and then, like, yeah, years later it comes out. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, yeah, you know, know, a really interesting kind of a, a, like, a must-play wherever you land on it. It feels like a thing that everyone sort of should experience and probably have a take on, even though I never want to hear those takes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You've heard mine now, and you must be appalled, frankly. Uh, your, your, your takes, you know, your takes are always good. I don't know, it's sort of... Like, whenever, whenever a mainstream game kind of sells itself on, like, big ideas, it feels like people really give it a hard time and you have to you have to hold up to so much scrutiny because all the clever journalists come out with that you know like bioshock or whatever there's lots of snooty stuff written about it where actually i think you should celebrate a game which kind of tries to engage with any ideas that are outside of the gamer's traditional wheelhouse yeah where this is almost the flip side of it where it doesn't advertise as a smart game and it is smart you know and so people kind of celebrated it more it's like people like to celebrate kind of hidden intelligence and drag down explicit intelligence Mm. it's a bad trait in a lot of games journalists and and critical writing in general it's almost like i'm going to show you how clever i am compared to the you know the self-purportedly clever game and you're like well you know fuck that i'm just not interested in that so i think like a lot of the takes we have on this podcast are well at least they tried do you know what i mean and like yeah and and, uh, like and but and i think that's perfectly valid but (laughs) 
Yeah, no, I agree with you. Um, but, uh, but we can you, we can deal with all that when we get to the inevitable Bioshock Infinite conversation. Twenty <laughs> um, thirteen future episode <laughs> yeah. for sure. Uh, so, what's your number six, Matthew? Uh, my number six is The Walking Dead season one. Higher on my list, but it's my number. It's my number five. So, um, do you want to talk about it now? We can talk about it after your six. All right. Okay. That is the format, I suppose. Um, yeah. My number six is FTL, Faster Than Light, um, on PC. Not on my list. Yeah, I didn't think it would be. Um, so, yeah, I uh, this I think I've discussed this on previous episodes. Kickstarted game, um, spaceship simulation roguelike, where you're, um, you're managing a ship um, throughout these battles uh, and essentially traveling across this um, this galaxy while being pursued by these um, these kind of like different uh, forces, basically. And your your goal is to, to survive um, these ship battles, to thrive, to upgrade your ship with new parts, new weapons, that sort of stuff. Recruit new little dudes to help manage your ship's systems. When you get attacked, your ship is on fire sometimes. You need to find ways to put the fires out. Basically, like spaceship management stuff. And um, I think like the thing I, I, I think that really brings it to life, actually, is just that I, I love the like little bit of, bits of narrative that you uncover in this game. Where you go mm. to a planet, it's like, oh, there's one, um, there's one survivor left from this like previous ship that crashed here. Um, do you let them on board, or do you um, basically like leave them on the planet to themselves? And like, you can, if you choose to bring them on board, there's a dice roll in the background where it's like um, they either join your crew as a new member and it's like really good, or they are a bit too far gone and then blow up a part of your ship. And that kind of risk reward element in narrative form really um, accompanies the ship battles well, Matthew. But um, mm. I would imagine people are very familiar with this, and I don't have loads more to say about it. So, last, do you have any any more thoughts? Any thoughts on this one? Do you ever play it? Um, I've pl- I've only ever played this in a party setting. Oh yeah, um, I remember now. Tom, at, Tom Francis' house, where we collectively killed loads of people again and again. <laughs> um, uh, it's weird how so many of my memories of Tom Francis are tied up with um, scary roguelikes where spaceships are failing. Because <laughs> I also played the Battlestar Galactica board game with him. Um, which we talked about maybe in the Excel episode again. I think it is the Patreon episode, <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry, listeners. I won't keep doing that. That's super obnoxious. <laughs> uh, but if you want to hear my Battlestar Galactica thoughts, <laughs> uh, that's that's in there. Um, prod, prod. Yeah, I, I think the the stuff about the narrative is is super interesting. It feels like it like becomes a bit of a model as well, or certainly like the thing I like most about Rogue like slash rogue light games is when they weave in like random narrative happenings and that seems to happen in many of them maybe it predates ftl in some other big way but this feels like quite a key influential game in that regard and it's a trait that i you know i'm interested in in how like narrative interacts with genres which are quite kind of can be quite mechanically cold in terms of their building blocks it kind of brings them to life and gives you the gives you like more of an emotional reason to keep playing, I guess. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I think that that does um, add to it a lot. And I think when they do the advanced edition in 2015, which is perhaps the best game ever released on iPad, if you ask me, um, I just think it's this game is perfect for playing on a, on an iPad. Um, it just really um, they added a bunch more of that story stuff um, with contributions from um, a now uh, a complicated figure to discuss. Serial <laughs> wrong in. Um, <laughs> yeah, Chris Avalone. So yeah, a bit complicated to discuss that bit. But the game itself, it's like two guys who made this: um, Justin Marr and Matthew Davis. Like a proper like um, good success story, I think. And um, a game I played loads in my early days on PC Gamer. Maybe this was my way of trying to understand how management works. I don't know, but. Um, Good stuff, Matthew. So what's your number five? 
Uh, my number five is Binary Domain. Yes! This is not on my list. I've never played it, but I was hoping you would discuss it. Um, seems like a proper cult classic, so uh, hit me up. Yeah, this is, I mean, like, the short version is is it's the Yakuza Studio does Gears of War. It's a cover-based shooter um, about a team of international agents who are trying to break into... Um, I think it's Tokyo, like a sort of Neo Tokyo, uh, in the future to find out who is building robots that look like people. Because in the future, robots are so robotics are so advanced that you can build lifelike people. They're called hollow children. It's against the law, but they start turning up in America, causing trouble. So everyone's like, "Well, we better we better go and deal with this." So it's quite a simple trip through the city from its um, sort of sewers and undercity all the way up to its gleaming sort of technological spires. Um, so it feels like while it obviously has like this huge blockbuster sort of scale to it and it's a linear trip through the city um it still has the yakuza team's very fine eye for like location and place and atmosphere even though it's completely detached from any recognizable reality it feels like a pretty comprehensively thought out place it feels like a very uh, believable slice of the future uh, that they present but what i really love about this is considering that these kind of games and cover-based shooters and third-person shooters are sort of felt to be more the domain of the West um, in terms of, like, that's where a lot of the the big breakout hits come from. Um, This one nails so many parts of the experience that the really key one it nails is the enemies are spectacular fun to fight because you're fighting robot armies and it captures the sense of a unfeeling mechanical death machine coming towards you and you shoot bits of their limbs off and they basically recalibrate based on where you shoot them so if you shoot off their arms and they can't use a machine gun they'll pull a pistol with their other hand and start using that if you shoot off their legs they'll claw along the ground towards you if you shoot off their heads they kind of go mad and start shooting wildly at their other robot friends and the sense of these like disintegrating robot bodies is so brilliantly captured like they really Really come apart in a beautiful way they're almost um it's almost like their skin is like ceramic the way they sort of shatter and break so it's got this really amazing sense of feedback which i think is like most of the battle in these kind of games like this does for mechanical bodies what gears of war arguably did for like flesh bodies <laughs> the satisfaction of like pattering flesh with bullets and seeing it going to get chewed up in gears of war this has the kind of shattering mechanical version and what's really telling is that when gears of war introduces a robot faction in gears 4 it is no way near as fun to fight as the robots in binary domain it's a huge fucking slog when it happens in gears 4 and i think that's partly because i think back to these guys they really nailed the one important thing which is what happens when you shoot an enemy is it really good if so it doesn't really matter what the game's about as long as you can just do that good thing again and again i'd say that is that is why binary domain is like you know maybe not on a nuts and bolts level the best like cover shooter like it's not as smooth in and out of cover it's a little bit janky but the the sort of thrust of the action is like really really up there in the genre as far as i'm concerned this is like in the sort of sub-genre of games marked chris Schilling will tweet about it sometimes and that's kind of like when it will like um... chris yeah i mean chris is a, a huge yeah a huge advocate and cheerleader for this game and uh that is why you know, he's he's one of the good eggs anyway but this this is this is definitely a factor in that 
yeah so um i have been wanting to play this for a long time i, I understand it's backwards compatible on xbox series x so frame boost as well yeah just waiting for a price drop uh on the um digital version and it will be mine matthew i will play this always meant to um really good it's I... also got really good sidekicks you've got like um like a french robot called kane right and while like it's fun to play the game with the original japanese voices if you play with the international cast you get the guy doing a very comedy french robot you know where he's like you know, he doesn't say je m'appelle kane but he is right. it's kind of like oh hello zootalors you know we're getting shot at and all this kind of stuff and he really sells that character not it's very sure. very endearing <laughs> not sure the real version can live up to your impression to be honest matthew You've, uh, uh you know it can't, honestly it can it's great it's just a french ro- like he doesn't wear a I don't think he wears a beret, <laughs> but in my mind he does. He's that French. Right, okay. I like that you're only about 80% sure then. Uh, I don't think he wears a beret. <laughs> I can imagine him, like, when I think of that robot, I think of a robot with a beret and, like, one of those striped mime shirts. <laughs> right. Uh, but he definitely doesn't wear that, but that is, like, 100% his energy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's really good. No, I'll definitely check that out at some point. Did you ever do much of the voice, like command stuff in this that's the thing you can do right you can do that with it on screen inputs as well at the time i think people got a bit distracted by the fact that you can like shout orders and like reply to them and your relationship with your ai characters there's like a loyalty system bubbling away under which sort of changes how some of the stuff happens at the end Mm. i must admit i didn't really get too into that side of things in the heat of battle i wasn't worried about am i saying something nice or not to this dumb french robot you know i was just enjoying i just enjoyed the ride i you know i haven't sort of endlessly replayed this test out variations or whatever the, the mic stuff i just i don't really have a, a read on it two things that stopped me from playing at the time i thought it had the most boring game title of all time binary domain yeah. um and my ongoing feud with um what's his face the guy i Negoshi. met yeah Negoshi, yeah my uh <laughs> as, as detailed in the best games of 2008 so um i held a grudge for a long time on that one so uh I really don't understand why pe- people were slightly sniffy about this game. You know, I think just the feel of it is so immediately, obviously good. Like, I sort of don't know what people were playing who gave this, like, a six. Yeah. And you know, it- where you were like, it just doesn't compute. Like, that just feels like, oh, well, it's not Gears. It's not snobby. Like, there's no way the Yakuza guys could make this shooter. That's how those reviews read to me. Like, I just, I don't believe this could possibly be good. And you're like, well, it just is. It just is good in the hands. Like, right. it obviously is. Oh, I definitely, um, definitely the players at some point then. I think this, like, the lack of success for this led to quite a big um, restructure at Sega as well. It was like quite a. I think they had a lot riding on it, and then it just didn't quite pan out. So um, yeah, it's like you're just going to make two Yakuza games a year for the rest of your life <laughs> <laughs> until you leave and join. Um, who else? I can't remember. They left and joined. Was it NetEase or something? Oh yeah. yeah. And hopefully he makes two Yakuza games there for the rest of his life. <laughs> yeah, and then while mainline Yakuza and Judgment just carry on, and there's four Yakuza games a year. That oh could be, my god, be good. The dream. <laughs> <laughs> um, Good stuff. So my number five, Matthew, as mentioned, is Telltale's The Walking Dead, season one. Um, mm-hmm. We discussed this a bit on the Horror Games episode with Louise. Very good episode. Let's try and get Louise on again soon. That yeah, was, uh, sure. She's really good. Um, yeah, so this was... Uh, I had low expectations for this because the TV show was on at the time. It was the hot shit, that TV show, even though it became crap extremely quickly and then remained crap for 10 years. Um, and I can't believe it's still on TV. That's ridiculous. Um, endless character deaths, just depressing, boring bullshit, just because it's got nice zombie effects in it, everyone lost their minds. This game came along at a time where I was really big on the TV show and like was based more in the comic universe. That left it, that raised a bit of an alarm bell. 
I looked at the art style of it. It's kind of cartoony thing and quite just didn't quite look real enough. And I was a bit like, eh, played it and was completely blown away by the sophistication of the choices, the characterization, um, this kind of relationship at the heart of the game between um, uh, Lee and Clementine. Um, uh, that was uh, this kind of like this kind of former convict. And then, yeah, this kind of like adopted um, sort of daughter figure. And the choices you make and the consequences that will play out in the episodes afterwards. And then when the episodes did roll out um, through the months, it felt like a genuine event when they dropped. It was like, I can't wait to see what happens next. Your take, Matthew, on this one? Yeah, I played it all after the end. Like, I, I heard this, like, rumbling on and getting big. And it wasn't until it was, like, appearing in people's, like, Game of the Year lists that I was like, oh, I better give this a go. And, yeah, I'm kind of blown away for all the same reasons. Um like I can count the number of games on one hand that have genuinely like emotionally kind of like got under my skin. I'm not going to say I wept at it. I don't think I did, but it's pretty hard. Like I find it very, very kind of hard to get to that place with games, but the kind of relationship that builds through this season and, and kind of what happens in the finale was, yeah, about the most effective version. Like for my money, this, this, these characters like meant a lot more to me. Um, like the last of us, Joel and Ellie, who are arguably very similar kind of, you know, energy to it in terms of, like, you're the protector and there's a younger character. Um, Great supporting cast as well. I feel like everyone kind of gets their moment to shine. I think that's where Telltale, like, get flakier as their games go on, is that they never... They never quite nail the ensemble in the way that they did here, where it feels like everyone had their place, everyone had their moment. Like it doesn't feel like anyone gets hugely shortchanged. I don't, not in my memory anyway. Just very, very beautifully balanced throughout, and um, yeah, great stuff. Yeah, for sure. I think like the, the fact that it's like one, there's one, what seems like a small decision that comes around back around in the final episode it's just like um really nice bit of like believable post-apocalyptic storytelling where the zombies are not the point of it the zombies are just like a background factor and it's about the humanity who are left which is always meant to be the kind of excitement at the heart of the walking dead comic it's like it's this soap opera thing but mm. this felt like a more sophisticated take on it to me and yeah i agree with you i think like the thing that i think i like about it compared to the joel ellie relationship is that you give in such an on-the-nose reason as to like Joel's perspective of that relationship in The Last of Us, which I know is a very powerful sequence, but it's almost a shortcut for you to understand what they're going for overall with the arc of that character. Whereas with with The Walking Dead, it's more circumstantial and maybe feels more real as a result. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Yeah. So I agree with you on that. Yeah, top stuff, Matthew. I, I never played the other ones. So I have no opinion on them at all. <laughs> yeah, they're, like, they're, they're, they're definitely interesting in that you have a connection to those characters and you like to see how everyone's getting on, but they're, um, they're not like the overarching stories for each season are nowhere near as good. I mean, t- I don't think Telltale like, ever got close to this again in terms of co- quality. Right. Um, maybe Tales from the Borderlands, but for totally different reasons. Like, it's just that's so different, but you know that's probably their second best game i'd say fair enough so what's your number four matthew my number four is dishonored higher on my list okay what's your number four mass effect three not on my list wow okay interesting but fluidity was (laughs) (laughs) hey it's at moments like this i think oh dear This is not a draft, though, Matthew. You're not going to be like... No, it's not a draft. Thanks. No, we, <laughs> we need a break from those, I think, just to, like, mentally yeah. recover. Um, we never talked about that, actually. You beat me in the PSV to draft by about 1.5%. That was uh, very close. 
Um, okay, yeah, so Mass Effect 3, definitely not as good as Mass Effect 2, of course. Um, very controversial ending to this trilogy of games where um, you could carry your save across between the different entries. Um, in this game, the, basically the Reapers are here, and it's like the end times, and it's like do or die, essentially. The stakes feel massive. They arrive right at the start of the game, and then you're basically scrambling to deal with this um, this ultimate apocalyptic threat that's basically here to reset uh, life in this part of the galaxy um and uh yeah things are, are looking bleak and so this manifest is a game that has a party that is not quite as good as mass effect 2's party which i'd say is an all-timer in terms of like great characters mm. uh zaid and jacob are also there um, <laughs> <laughs> um we obviously talked about mass effect a lot on that episode we did last year matthew which i was really proud of a lot of scrambled mm. together mass effect memories there um I think this trilogy coming out though has really like reestablished it as like a, you know, there was less controversy. Like you know, there's no more arguments about the ending. People don't care as much, and they're able to just celebrate it as a whole um, more mm. than they were, which is good. And yeah, I, th- I think the finality of it really landed with me. I know it comes down to pressing one of two buttons, but um, there is a piece of music in this. Kill cl- Jacob or don't kill Jacob. <laughs> Uh, Clint, Tough break. <laughs> uh, Clint Mansell piece of music called An End Once and For All, which I think is like a beautiful piece of music that really just like sold the sense of an end of a journey to me. And I felt it felt very significant to me because the first game in this series came out when I first got into games media. The last one came out at this point where I felt like I'd been around for a long time. So it was always kind of there, Mass Effect. It was always a thing we discussed in the office. And then here was this final entry to cap it all off with these characters I was very attached to. A, be- a slightly better shooter than Mass Effect 2 but um, yeah I, w- I would say that like in terms of like the RPG experience feels felt just slightly pared down from Mass Effect 2 fewer yeah. um, characters to interact with um, you didn't have the loyalty missions you did have like a form of them I feel like but the specific loyalty missions of Mass Effect 2 um, it didn't have that same episodic format um, but yeah still a game I love thoughts Matthew hmm. yeah I, I, I just much I much prefer 2 I don't have any particular beef with 3 but it, it, it feels like it switches into like let's end this mode and um as a standalone thing i'm just you know i think i think it is successful and i think it it sees a lot of stuff through and how reactive it is to your mass effect 2 save in in many ways maybe not right at the end but in many other ways is still hugely impressive um yeah it's it's just down to like you know not as much into the characters um i feel like they didn't really do anything with fane that i enjoyed in this and i was a big fane guy so that was that was a bit sad yeah i i think in my life i was just so busy that when i i did I, you know i did play this when it came out but i just didn't have like it just didn't really lodge with me in any particular way i had so many other bigger concerns with what was going on with the mags that I just couldn't I couldn't really worry about Mass Effect 3 so it's kind of slipped through the nostalgia cracks a little bit for me which is why it doesn't appear on my list but I have no real issue with it yeah that's um that's that's fair um it was like really significant to me I was really ready for it when it came around um Mm. and so yeah it was it was a massive moment then it was all gone suddenly it was uh yeah just And, and the think pieces as well Ugh. Yeah, the debate around the um, the ending definitely overshadowed this game. Sucked seeing developers get harassed. Sucked seeing pricks get what they want on the internet. Just sucked the whole thing. And I didn't have that much bigger problem with the ending. And then when they added the extra ending bit, I didn't really... Didn't go back and look at it. Wasn't interested. Felt like I'd said I'd had my time with those characters and it was fine. Um, mm. I think people just wanted something impossible from this series. It had already given them so much. I think this is like yeah. an all-time great trilogy of games. And... Yeah, I wasn't having it, frankly. So, well said. So what's your number three, Matthew? Three. 
is Beat the Beat, Rhythm Paradise. A classic Matthew Castle entry not on my list. Again, like this is just like a huge 2012 game for me because it was the one magazine cover that I edited where I really got to do the game I wanted. So my happy memories are tied up with it. It's a entry in the uh, Rhythm Heaven series, which is Nintendo's uh, sort of weird WarioWare-ish. Um, it's kind of an offshoot of the WarioWare team involved with it. Uh, rhythm game where all the games are built around very simple button inputs on here it's just the a on the wii remote or pressing pinching a and b together and it's uh yeah just following the rhythm like as long as you follow the rhythm you won't go wrong and then what the mini game tries to do is basically throw you off with all kinds of like weird audio tricks and visual tricks so you know a lot of this game kind of it's just as long as you keep the rhythm up you will win and and that's it's as simple as that so beautifully easy to pick up absolutely banging tunes um i think what i like about the wii one is that obviously it's the only one made for tv normally these are handheld games and up until this point i would have said oh that makes sense like they feel more like handheld games because you're locked into these quite bitty like some of them are only 30 seconds long the idea of sitting at a tv to play them doesn't make any sense but i really love the scale that the wii brings to some of these games a lot of them have elements where you start very close up to the action to kind of set the rhythm so you've got the visual uh, cues as well helping you so like say you're um like marching a little bird on the screen and then as the game progresses like the camera will view out and like more birds will appear until eventually there's like a thousand birds and you're really far from the action and it's it's kind of like the blockbuster equivalent of um of a rhythm heaven game and uh like another famous example of this there's one where you've basically got a ticking hand on a on a watch going around and uh, you're on the end of it you're high-fiving monkeys who pop out of like the hot holes around the side of the watch mm-hmm. so you're just like high-fiving each one on the beat as you go around but eventually like yeah it zooms all the way out so you can no longer see the individual monkeys and you're just hitting you can just hear the slap of the high five and it does lots of tricks with that like it does everything i'd want a tv version of rhythm heaven to do i guess yeah also like I was I was never particularly into the DS version of this because it had touchscreen controls. It was all stylus-based. Right. And the precision of a button press is just so much nicer than flicking a screen or tapping a screen. Like, for my money, the A button on the Wii remote is, like, the ultimate rhythm heaven control scheme. So that's why this one this one really, really works for me. Okay. So uh, if I wanted to play... Because I've looked this, looked this up, Matthew. I believe this is available on Wii U to buy, right, digitally. Um, yeah yeah you can buy it yeah you can buy it on wii u i mean probably the one i would say to get now is mega mix on 3ds right i was about to ask that yeah that's got like most of the best games from like the entire series in one game like that's that's the most rhythm heaven you'll get none of these games are so big that you think you feel entirely comfortable paying like 40 quid for them or whatever yeah like they're very niche but if you are into them and you click with their particular thing and like their visual sense of humor and their charm, like they're, they're, it's like a series I 100% get behind. It's similar to WarioWare in that, that way. You know, you don't play these games to play for a 100 hours, but because you are a believer in like Nintendo's sort of silly department where these <laughs> games come from. Yeah, the most um, chef kiss pair of like um, games I have in my one of my 3DS Hori um, sort of like books is like the row that has both WarioWare Gold and Rhythm um, Heaven sort of like Paradise Megamix uh, next yeah. to each other. That's like 
chef kiss that is that's like you yeah, know, yeah. <laughs> makes me very satisfied seeing those next to each other <laughs> it's like the height of indulgence but, <laughs> like, god bless it um yeah 55 quid this will set you back on ebay to buy the original oh, version preposterous Oster. yep um not many wii games go for that high but uh yeah okay good stuff matthew got pleased to see uh, uh to hear that on your list ahead of uh, dishonored um uh, just what i'd expect <laughs> from you um perfect <laughs> in a good way um my number three is Hotline Miami. So, yes, this was, as mentioned on the PS3 to draft, we just discussed this very recently. Top-down action game, kind of like riffs on 80s nostalgia, uh, kind of pumping, sort of like, I don't know, what's the term, electro-something or other soundtrack. There's some, some term for it, um, for the type of music this taps into. It was a very, like, early 2010s uh, genre to take off, synthwave, that kind of thing. That's the word I'm yeah. thinking of. And like, uh, basically comes down to like a score attack of um, taking down loads of dudes in, in a row, shooting them, um, punching them, uh, hitting them where they're on the ground, uh, and then like throwing knives, uh, baseball bats, anything you can think of to create these kind of like, you know, John Wick style set pieces, I guess. John Wick feels mm. a bit reductive to kind of like describe it that way, but um, just very brutal encounters. I suppose Old Boy is probably more what it was going for. Yeah. Um, just really nicely done. Such a confident sense of style. Um, just like looked unlike anything else at the time. A proper like games are changing moment, I suppose, where it's like this is like a, a kind of the quintessential indie game in some ways of like a certain type of indie game where it's like a riff on a past a past genre um contemporized um in all these different ways in terms of the way it controls the way it sounds and the way it looks really really exciting uh, arguably uh, a game that was um probably best at home on vita more than anything else but it started on pc and um became enormous justifiably so um i controversially still slightly prefer the sequel because it's longer but uh any thoughts on this one matthew yeah i <clears throat> I, I i didn't pick this one just because i I sort of associate it more with Vita. I associate that that's that's 2013, right? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I don't think I've even played it on PC. So you know, purely for that rather semantic view, I've I've not gone with it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's like you say, just a an absolutely essential key part of the indie landscape. A, a bit of a game changer. I mean, all that aside, just hugely entertaining in a really grisly way. Um, absolutely zero shame in really, really enjoying this horrible game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. I had a dream recently that um, uh, Denaton announced a new game, and then I woke up and it wasn't real, and I was very sad. Um, nice little pocket anecdote. For Do you they there. still exist, Denaton? Yeah, I believe so. Like, I, I, I think they, they are working on something. They've like said a few things publicly about what it is. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we'll see. They'll, they'll be back, I think. So, what's your number two, Matthew? My number two is Zero Escape, Virtue's Last Reward. Ah, here he comes, uh, Mr. Zero <laughs> Mr. Zero Escape, the series that battered me in the PSV to draft. Um, so it, my understanding is that like the first two games are legit, Matthew, but the uh, third one is not, and uh, this is the second one, so uh, what's the this deal? This is the second one. I think the third one is legit, but we'll get to that down the line when we eventually, whatever year that was. Um, yeah, this is the second one. I think you can enjoy it as a standalone game. Like it has some quite big story connections to the first, but I think it's relatively well explained within it. A visual novel mixed with escape room kind of point and click puzzles. 
that's what I think elevates this above a lot of other visual novels. Is that if you get a little bit kind of sleepy from just reading ends, endless text, every once in a while there's a really like engaging puzzle section to play, and that kind of rhythm of like text and then puzzle, text and puzzle uh, is what livens this up. I actually wonder if that puzzle element means it's technically not a visual novel. I don't really know what the rules are for that, but whatever. Um, <laughs> really great setup load of strangers locked in a game of death where they basically have to sort of vote whether to sort of uh, trust or betray one another um it's a bit like the jasper carrot game golden balls right. um uh, in that if you both vote to trust you both win if one person votes to trust and the other person votes to betray you get absolutely fucked and the betrayer gets loads of points so it's all about like the tension that exists between people i mean it's none of it's sort of like procedural or whatever it's all highly scripted and you have to play like every variation of the story to get to the true ending of the game but um there's there's like a good charge to those those scenes where you're doing the kind of trust or betray um it's quite funny i wrote jasper carrot's golden balls in my notes for this and then went back to my read my review just before recording (laughs) and my opening paragraph was all about jasper carrot's golden balls (laughs) like my brain is so locked into that idea that even like 10 years on i've basically like i went to exactly the same place right right i don't know that's that's probably i don't know that's a good sign my brain's not fading too quickly (laughs) um yeah this is just as a piece of genre science fiction thriller, amazing twist turns, a really just complete epic story. It doesn't go where you're thinking. The puzzles are really good. Characters are really good. Um, it's packed with philosophical ideas and miniature science lectures that kind of create this soup of ideas that you spend the whole game in. So you're just constantly thinking, well, how does this relate? And it, it it kind of casts everything in an interesting light. It's just a game of ideas, but not too highfalutin or pretentious, just very accessible, really fun and entertaining, but also pretty damn smart. I think this is so, so good. Okay, yeah. I always meant to play these games, Matthew. So would you recommend... What's the, what's your recommended way of playing it these days? Uh, well, one and, two, one and two have been done as like a port to PC. Uh, they've, just been, they've just been added to Game Pass, actually, so you can play them on Xbox One as well. Oh, yeah. Um, can you play them on so your phone? Play, uh, yeah, yeah, you can stream them. So, yeah, you can do that. So, yeah, definitely play 999 first if you can, and then play this one. They're, they're, they're together as a duology on um, Xbox Game Pass. And then we'll see if they release the third one. I don't know. But um, yeah, very easy to play these these days. I assume that if, because this is like the first time they've ever been released on Xbox, that maybe like a Switch version seems quite likely. Because um, it's, it's a Spike Chunsoft game, right? So Yeah, you'd think it would be ov- yeah an obvious choice. Yeah, so um, like Danganronpa, it feels like it'll there'll maybe just be a Switch version later on yeah. at some point, you know, hopefully. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. But um, yeah, not graphically complicated. Like, say it was a 3DS and a... A Vita game as well, but um, you know it, it does the job on whatever format. I played it on 3DS, started replaying it on uh, uh, Xbox just to see what it was like, and it, yeah, held up great. Great stuff. Yeah, I will uh, always meant to play these. I'm sure they'll come up when we have um, Lucy on for our uh, visual novels episode uh, in mm. the summer. That should be good. Okay, cool. Uh, so my number two, Matthew, is XCOM Enemy Unknown. Oh shit, that's not on my list. All right, yeah. <laughs> did, did you like it that game more? I did. Yeah, I did like it. <laughs> Okay, yeah, fair enough. It sounded a bit like regretful there, but I don't know. Um, no, I kind of, yeah, I just keep feeling bad about that fluidity. <laughs> <laughs> well, stop. Fluidity's had enough like um, bad a flack from uh, your actions, Matthew. Like, I don't think we need to keep <laughs> digging with it. Um, those poor people at Curve, come on. Um, 
Yeah, okay, so XCOM Enemy Unknown. Firaxis-led uh, reboot of um, an old Microprose, I think it was, series um, created by Julian Gollop in the 90s. Also known as UFO Enemy Unknown in the UK, I think it was. I don't know why that happened. Um, confusing, but I'm sure someone, some branding person thought that was a good idea. Um, so this game uh, reformatted the turn-based uh, tactical experience of fighting these alien invaders into a gamepad friendly format released it on pc and consoles uh, a, a, an experience where there was parity between those different versions incredibly impressive for the time um Ooh. i think it helps that this game is quietly quite simple i would say it's like you know it's it's got a high skill ceiling to really succeed as a, a tactics based experience you've got to like make all the right moves and the high difficulties and not fuck anything up um this is a game big on dramatic percentages where a 90% shot might miss and then you'll have you'll be reeling from that um you build up a big uh, sort of investment in your characters by naming them and changing their appearance in a very limited way i would say um changing their nationality so you have samuel roberts from nigeria on the battlefield that's kind of confusing Great. um but you know don't think about it too hard i would say um <laughs> and then you're basically going into these like urban environments so a variety of different environments and like looking for the aliens hunting them out and then trying to repel them um capturing them to study to learn more about them then more deadly types turn up and ultimately you take on this um that you go to like a big spaceship and 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 try and like destroy the whole thing and stop the invasion um really nicely done and like the isometric perspective with like a 3d camera you can move around just meant that like and the really chunky ui felt like a breakthrough innovation in making this type of game work well on consoles um really Mm. really good and like um yeah dramatic fun exciting great on ipad as well i mentioned the um vita version in the um previous episode but yep and uh, only um only improved by the addition of like mech stuff and alien things in the um follow-up expansion enemy within in 2013 thoughts on this one matthew yeah i'm kind of in complete agreement with all that just the fact that it sort of invents what this genre is now like it sort of almost sort of single-handedly kind of creates the 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 rules for this allows this this kind of game to work in you know I, I love many variations on this that have come afterwards. You know, I love the Gears Tactics. Um, there was that Western one, which is like a bit supernaturally. That was quite good. Hard West, maybe it was called. Yeah, uh, yeah, of, right. yeah. But I feel like they laid a lot of important groundwork that other people can like riff on. I mean, you know, rare is the game that moves a sort of genre ahead completely, particularly something which feels so PC centric into the console space. Uh, yeah, a really, a really, yeah, special game. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I think as well, like it's telling that when uh, Julian Gollop made Phoenix Point with his studio Snapshot, um, you know, he wasn't afraid to borrow back from uh, the game that it iterated mm. on the formula he created. Um, that's very flattering, I think, for Firaxis. And um, yeah, I think that's uh, it, it's great to see that kind of thrive um, as a subgenre. So yeah, great stuff. Yeah, I really love this. And the simplicity of this, I think, like still holds up quite nicely next to XCOM 2, which is a bit more intense. Um and packed as an experience a masterpiece for sure but i just really love this first one the vibe of it mm. was spot on um so what's your number one matthew my number one is kid icarus uprising of course of course probably for me the definitive 3ds game in terms of 
the way it uses the 3DS, so basically a huge reboot for Kid Icarus, an old NES game which had a kind of certain charm to it, but it's quite a simple 2D platformer. This takes the action and splits it into sort of two arcadey phases. One is sort of an aerial space harrier-esque game where you're shooting into the screen, quite like Sin and Punishment as well, where you're in the foreground, you're shooting into the background, but the camera's like constantly pivoting and spinning to frame the action in like the most exciting way possible as you sort of fly through canyons and over battlefields. But then at some point in the level, you've got like a limited amount of time that you can fly. That's like a narrative control rather than a mechanic you run out of flight and you land and then you do an on foot section where you sort of explore in third person a kind of a smaller kind of enemy base or whatever and then end up fighting a a, a huge uh, boss for a game which is my favorite game of the this year still feels like a huge love it or hate it because it's got a very unusual control scheme you basically control the camera with the stylus you control pip with the circle pad and then his attacks with l and that's if you can kind of picture such a thing if you have not played this game that's quite an unfriendly grip enough that they had to sell the game with a a plastic stand to put the 3ds on there was never a version of this game where you could use the second analog stick or the analog nub to control the aiming if it would work as more of a twin stick thing in theory it would but I i will say like aiming the camera and aiming your reticule with the stylus gives it a speed and a kind of reactivity that maybe an analog stick couldn't kind of keep up with. It's kind of like the 3DS equivalent of mouse and keyboard. Right. I can't really picture it working as well on an, on two analog sticks. If you can get over that hurdle, you're basically in for a really singular action experience, which is quite un-Nintendo-like in many ways. It was made by Masahiro Sakurai, a.k.a. Kirby's dad, Mr. Smash Brothers, and he makes what I think is probably like the most cinematic Nintendo campaign ever. Visually gorgeous. There's a huge amount of writing and voiceover in this game. Basically, the whole time you're playing, you're bantering with uh, the goddess Palutena, who's kind of your sidekick, or with the bosses of the level. So there's all this chat. There's a lot of like twists and turns. It's very like anime-ish. Story is quite important to this in a way that it just isn't in a lot of Nintendo action games. The, f- the, the pure visual spectacle of it feels like a lot more... I don't want to say Western, but I do think like, of all the Nintendo developers, if you ever read interviews with Sakurai, he is the most willing to talk about that he has a game-playing love outside of working for Nintendo. You know, he'll talk about playing Western F- FPS games and action games where Nintendo, are li- they're almost a little bit above it, a lot of them. Like, Miyamoto never really talks about other people's games, where I think Sakurai feels, like, a lot more open to other ideas. And this, to me, feels like a game which is trying to be, you know... I'm not going to say it's, like, their Uncharted, but <laughs> it's definitely their spectacular blockbuster action game, maybe more in the mould of, like, a Platinum game, say where there's a lot of like visual storytelling, there's a lot of epic scale, mad bosses. Just doesn't feel like anything else Nintendo have made. It feels like something only Sakurai could have made. I think it's so unusual. I think it's so full of charm. I think the writing is genuinely very funny. The game had a big like pass on it by... Mike Drucker. An American comedian. I think he writes some like late night chat shows and things. You know, Nintendo games often have a cute charm to it. I'd say this is like a lot more like American in its feel, Mm. but it is going for that kind of Saturday morning cartoon thing which a lot of games go for i'd say this is the only one that really lands it 
like if you compare this to say like the abysmal writing in the Ratchet and Clank series, this nails that child-friendly but really surreal, really zany. It's actually got good jokes. The problem is the action so like fo- you're so focused on playing the damn thing, you miss a lot of it. So some of the replayability is actually just going through it and like drinking in like some of the weirdness that's going on around it. So it's like definitely a bit much this game. I kind of loved it for that. Um, has one of the all-time great Nintendo soundtracks. Like, this is that period where they got big into, like, live musicians playing things, and there's just a... Sometimes you can just hear the energy of a room of people playing music in a soundtrack, and this has got it. It's got a really, like, jazzy, rocky, like, swing element to it in places. I just think it. I just think it's one of the, like, the classiest 3DS games. I've been replaying it this last week, and I'm like... Holy shit, this is this is like legitimately probably like in my top twenty of all time. I think this is I think this is just absolute magic. Wow. Yeah, I sort of I, I did play this at the time, but I didn't get like mega deep into it. Um like I think I played about three or four hours of it or something. So I never really encountered the sort of tone side of it in a way that felt meaningful to me. Um yeah. my memory of it is just how kind of Smash Brosy it felt in terms of like the menu presentation yeah. and stuff and like the, the whole gambling element of it, Matthew, with the difficulty slider. This is the first time he did that and then he took it into Smash Brothers, which is where you sort of like up the difficulty and gamble your currency on how well you think you're gonna do and that ties in also to like the quality of loot you get out of a level. There's a big like loot game in this, not obnoxiously so, it's still very manageable. But it does like escalate. Like it wants you to play a bit harder, get better weapons, push into even harder territory that's that's it's designed to be replayed like that so like levels in their entirety are maybe like 10 to 15 minutes like the idea that you can just keep doing them and doing them ever more powerful mm. there's so many weird subsystems that i can't really go into with just dragging this podcast out to like four hours <laughs> you know sakurai he has a take on everything like there is no element of this game where something weird or interesting isn't being done it doesn't feel very like elegant as a result but you feel like someone has really like put their stamp on all of this which i really love it's also much bigger than you think it's going to be the campaign has a certain shape to it but the twist is it's kind of like the first act of a three-act campaign Mm. where it goes is really wild I actually feel bad about not talking on this about this on our boss episode now. Right. Because there's some bosses in this. The end fight of this is God in space, exactly 100% what you want. You know, it ends on the its biggest possible note, as all games should. Uh, yeah, I'm kind of mad that I didn't talk about that, but there we go. I've, I'm making up for it here. Yeah, great stuff, Matthew. Oh, I should really go and play this properly. I will say that, like, of all the items I've discarded in house moves... The easiest one to part with was that stand for the 3DS. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's like, okay, good fillers on DVD. That can go to a charity shop. Um, This stand just has to go in the bin. There's just no, there's no way I can keep moving this between houses. Um, The idea that you know your control scheme is so fucked that you have to make something to try and ease the pain. Yeah. that is not very Nintendo. <laughs> it's, it's very early 3DS Nintendo though, like the Monster yeah. Hunter like um, stick thing, all that stuff. It's very like we're not entirely, we haven't entirely cracked this yet. You know what I mean? Like, um, <laughs> yeah. I would love to see a, like a proper remake of this on Switch because I think it it's, it has the the scale and ambition that would hold up visually. I would love to see like a punch up of what is already a gorgeous game in 3D. I think this would look so so good on that screen and like control wise i think you probably could do it with the second analog stick but i don't know that's for sakurai to work out not me (laughs) 
Yeah, fair enough. Um, okay, good stuff, Matthew. I love hearing you talk about that game. That's great. Um, okay, so my number one is Dishonored. Probably fairly predictable for people who have listened to our Immersive Sim episode. Uh, this was... Uh, I remember this kind of came out of like... It didn't feel like out of nowhere, but um, I wasn't really aware of Arcane's background that much. And so this game comes out, I know has got the um, the Deus Ex lead designer, Harvey Smith, involved. And it's from Bethesda, which has been, uh, you know, kind of like steadily um, investing in like um, becoming a publisher more than a developer in the years since uh, Oblivion came out. To some mixed results, like uh, Rogue Warrior with Mickey Rourke and like that game Wet that came out. Um, those <laughs> were like kind of kind of like mixed fortunes there, but they were just starting to really hit their stride here. Arcane make this game the where it's like set in this sort of steampunky, Londony um, sort of like grim world that's kind of plague infested. There are rats everywhere, um, and then essentially you um, you are cast out because um, you have been framed for the murder of this queen. Um, who is actually your lover, and the um, their daughter, the daughter is um, who it turns out to be your daughter, is kidnapped um, by the assailants, and um, you are essentially an outsider who has to go around killing these targets, who I think are responsible for the conspiracy. I can't remember the exact plot elements of it too much, but it essentially yeah. boils down to a series of missions where, well, for the first half at least, or the first two thirds, you have to go and kill a specific target in a in a particular way, um, and that amounts to the immersive sim thing of like. Do you take an action approach? Do you take a stealthy approach where you're never seen? The ghost kind of like um, approach to playing the game? Or do you kind of like unravel some kind of sophisticated narrative um, way to finish the um, the mission in a way that can be quite darkly humorous? Um, mm. And so obviously the peak of this, um, this game is often cited as um, Lady Boyle's last party. Um, but this game is like rife with very beautifully designed levels like massive levels right um you know ripe with possibilities of how to tackle them um a, a brilliantly replayable game um and just uh yeah where the controls felt so responsive that felt like the real kind of like step forward for the immersive sim here it was how responsive the movement felt the kind of like um zipping between different bits of the environment um just fantastic and uh yeah I, I wish it had been more influential. There should be more games like this, but Arcane mm. are the masters of them. Thoughts, Matthew? Yeah, I, and I, I'd, I'd agree with all that. I'd say the only reason it was slightly lower down my list is that I I much, much prefer Dishonored 2. Yeah. Um, I think the... Fu- I think the... I think there's only really, like, five levels in this I really like in the middle. <laughs> yeah. And then the last three I don't particularly like, and then it's kind of over. Like... I wish this was just 10 levels of like one target per level, but the story kind of derails that a little bit for the last, for the third act. Um, also, like the non lethal options aren't quite as interesting in this. Like, it feels like to play it stealthily, you're having to, uh, you don't get to toy with a lot of fun stuff, where the sequel definitely gives you more non lethal toys to play with. But yeah, I remember reading like, I think like the game informer like announcement of this or whatever and there's all the shit about you can freeze time and then walk someone in front of their own bullet and you know take control of a fish and swim it through the sewers to get in and you're like holy shit what is this game and it is that game like all that stuff's definitely in there I also worry that I just and this came up a little bit in the immersive sim episode that I don't necessarily have the imagination to make the most of these games yeah like I'm I may be too conservative like all the wacky stuff you can do isn't like the optimal way to do it and my brain is so broken you know by trying to optimize my performance in like every other game that I can't really like 
enjoy myself properly as I'm meant to, but that's on me, not Dishonored. <laughs> I think I agree with that a little bit. I think this is where I quite like the um, opportunity system in Hitman, where it's like, you know, you can follow this path and do all the actions, but then there is like a narrative arc that plays out. Mm. Whereas, hey, there are bits like that in uh, Dishonored, but like um, maybe it's like it's a bit more open to things going wrong and like a shootout breaking out and that and it being quite a scruffy way you get to the finish i felt like i definitely had a few missions like that in the first one married to the fact that i maybe didn't have the time to throw at it that i that i would like you know just because there was so much so many other games to play um yeah so i i I definitely feel you on that one um but yeah that's i would say that even if your um experience the game is just to appreciate the worlds they've built and the scenarios they give you that's that's mm. fine i do agree with you that it drops off when you're kind of going through siri bits just um killing dudes it's a bit less um it mm. loses momentum whereas the second game takes lady boyle's last party as like a template and it's like let's do <laughs> basically a whole game of these and they'll all rule um yeah yeah so the, we're talking about like uh, basically a nine out of ten game versus one of the best games ever made so it's well that's yeah. that's it so yeah 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 that's it. And, and and you know it, it lives in the shadow of that second game a bit but it, it definitely not not diminished uh you know it's its own location as well and yeah like there are stuff like it, it, i know they made games before this but it feels like it just arrives as this like fully formed thing such a clear vision of what they wanted to do um yeah it is rad i should have maybe put it higher oh well that's <laughs> oh, fine you put your number four right yeah that's cool um matthew let's quickly recap what our top 10 was because then i'll tweet out the list eventually um, and it's a bit mm. less a uh, bit easier to salvage so what's your number 10 uh, Resident Evil 6. I had Sleeping Dogs at number 10. Your number 9, Matthew? Uh, Nintendo Land. I had Catherine. Uh, your number 8, Matthew? Fluidity Spin Cycle. Lollipop Chainsaw. Your number 7? Fez. Spec Ops The Line. Your number 6? Walking Dead Season 1. FTL Faster Than Light. Your number 5? Binary Domain. Uh, that was where I put The Walking Dead. Your number 4? Dishonored. Mass Effect 3. Your number 3? Beat the Beat, Rhythm Paradise. Hotline Miami for me, your number two. Zero Escape, Virtue's Last Reward. XCOM Enemy Unknown for me, your number one. Kid Icarus Uprising. Dishonored for me. So, good. Um, yeah, that's a lot faster than uh, talking out over three hours, isn't it? So, um, God, we've <laughs> gone very long here, Matthew. Let's do some very brief honourable mentions. First one of mine, The Darkness 2, I mentioned it. Took the first yeah. game's approach to like um, monsters, uh, kind of like on your sort of shoulders, but um, based on a NAF comic book from the nineties. But turned it into a full, full-blooded action game, uh, less sophisticated game, but a really fun one with quite an interesting sort of narrative um, choice element of whether you believe it's a hallucination or not. Um, what's your first honorable mention? The last story, obviously, the, the reason I met Catherine to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, hugely important personal game. A really delightful Wii RPG, very interesting game from old Sakaguchi. Yes, that's right, yeah. That's right. But, you know, uh, still like an 8 out of 10. It's like It may have been the basis of my marriage, but it's um, it's no Resident Evil 6. <laughs> <laughs> Reduces his wife to the honourable mentions. You hate to see it. <laughs> I've got like, uh, I'm going to like try and get through these quickly. So I... Um, Mentioned Max Payne 3, I'd have to talk about that. Halo 4, I put here, a lesser Halo game. 
but a really nice looking one. I thought the multiplayer was still really good. Um, just didn't um, quite have the campaign magic of the uh, the bungee ones for me. But I encourage them to keep trying. Eventually, three four three, I'm sure we'll get there. Next one of yours, Matthew. Crimson Shroud. Oh yeah, the three th- DS uh, RPG from Mister uh, Vagrant Story and Final Fantasy Tactics. Mm-hmm. Just an RPG with lots of weird quirks. Like every mechanic has something slightly weird with it. Set in a world which is like a tabletop RPG, so all the characters are die cast models. Very charming for a little eShop download. Well worth the 10 quid or whatever it is. is. Yep, cool. I'm going to bundle the rest of mine into one big chunk, actually, because I think that's just easier. Lego Lord of the Rings. um, We mentioned that in the Lord of the Rings episode. I don't know why that episode happened in retrospect. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It was a fun one, though. I enjoyed it. It was good. Um, Alan Wake's American Nightmare. um, Kind of short spin-off of the uh, Alan Wake games. So it's more action-focused, a bit more of a competent action game. Only it doesn't make my list because it's a bit too slight and features Kasabian, which I can't endorse. And uh, Dear (laughs) Esther is in here as well. Um, important game in the um, the sort of like uh, uh, the strand genre um, <laughs> uh, the walking simulator game but like uh, I think later games do it better including from the developers there Lone Survivor that's in there um, like a sort of like side scrolling kind of like um, a narrative survival horror thing that had a bit of um, vibes of Silent Hill not quite good enough to make the list but a cool game nonetheless and I feel like a big Joe Scrabble's game Dragon's Dogma has not made my list I didn't quite get into it massively I know people love this game though Matthew so wanted to mention it yeah yeah that's that's Joe Scrabble's back this is a big this has been a big Scrabble's uh, heavy episode <laughs> Uh, yeah, a man of exquisite taste. So, um, what, what, what are your remaining honourable mentions? The, the only, the only other one I was umming and ahhing about, and it didn't come close to my list, but I, I have it. I think it's okay. Is uh, Hitman Absolution? Oh, of course. Yeah, we should have talked about that one in more detail. Yeah, right? like yeah. it's like bobbins in so many ways, yeah. and it absolutely destroys the kind of structure of what makes those games good. But there are pockets of wow, holy shit! This is what like next gen kind of hitman feels and looks like yeah and you know like the busy chinatown um is the one that comes to mind and some of the predatory stealth elements like it's pretty kind of vicious and kind of cool like you're very very powerful in this game but it's quite un hitman in a lot of ways kind of a proto version of the the kind of uh unlocks and sort of submission structure which makes new hitman so good is in this too Look very nice as well, if I recall. Yeah, um, but it's just it's it is kind of fucked in so many ways, though. Never really like, played this one. I should play it. And talk I wish about I it. loved it more. There's yeah. stuff in it where I'm always like, oh, actually, this is quite good. And then I'll get to like a rotten like. There's a lot of the sh- horrible s- cinematic stealth in it, which is just guff. I don't know. But amazing that they would go on to make like you know Hitman 2016, like just yeah. a complete complete redo that really nails it yeah um, some of that's in here but like the broken versions of it and then you're like oh yeah if you've just done that it does work you know <laughs> for sure uh yeah so let's find an excuse to talk about that one again at some point um yeah yeah okay cool well we did it matthew our longest episode ever i think there wrapped up um oh Re- really long but really good i love doing these um yeah it's really good fun yeah. um i hope i didn't get too mawkish with my 2012 nostalgia no it's fine we've been paid for it now so it's um it's uh, <laughs> the time is well worth it how obnoxious <laughs> um so yes yeah, so if you would like to support the podcast after that ringing endorsement um uh, patreon.com slash backpage pod you can go and immediately unlock um, best boss battles if three hours of us in a week isn't enough for you um and with uh, all those delights are read out at the start to come 
if we hit 600 pounds uh 12 more podcasts um over the next year will unlock themed around pop culture subjects if you want to hear matthew talk about japanese crime fiction and then us ranking the mcu films it's a bit unusual for us but you can um you can get those as well if we hit 600 pounds uh, at the four pound 50 tier um so thank you very much for listening we're backpage pod on twitter this way you can find our discord details as well join our little community matthew where are you on social media at mr basil underscore pesto Jeez, there's also backpagegames at gmail.com if you'd like to send us a letter to read out on a future podcast. God, so many things we've got going on now. Um, <laughs> that's enough, isn't it, for now? Um, just a special shout out to John Strike, who has helped us with our Patreon page and designed our logo. Um, always like really appreciate his help. And of course, um, uh, Barry Epoch Topping, who, um, is, who uh, has made our wonderful um, theme tune, which we're always grateful to have in the podcast now. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.